0: Here we are. Uh, I believe sincerely that I'm John Atak. And um I'm led to believe that this is Chris Shelton, Master of Science.
1: Yeah, there. <laughs> uh yes, semi, semi-mastering, I suppose. With a flourish and a bow. I I I welcome you all here. <laughs> Pretty. Uh, So hey, everybody. So John and I were just talking a little bit beforehand about some stuff, some observations about, I don't know, we won't, I don't know that we have to name names, but it is certainly interesting to be out of Scientology for 10 years, John, significantly longer.
0: 39
1: years. Yeah, (laughs) to, to watch the... You know, I don't know, you know, you don't want to be too judgy or whatever. But at the same time, it's just like, Jesus Christ, guys, there is an interesting set of people. And I have observed this not just in the ex-Scientology world. I'm not actually picking on any one person here, but it's really interesting how
0: We're, different... picking, on it. We're picking on everybody. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's interesting how different people will approach the subject of post-cult life and how some few and and again not just in the ex scientology world will dig in their heels and will absolutely positively refuse to budge in their messaging and so i i ran you know you run across some of these people when i first got out of scientology 9 10 years ago mm-hmm. and got on social media ran into certain folks and were like wow you know they're really these are guys who've been around for years you know, talking about Scientology, talking about the abuses, and you go, okay, good, let's get on this train, let's talk about this, let's be a group of people, maybe we can help each other. But over time, you start learning that there's some folks who aren't really about moving on, are not really about kind of, let's deal with this and heal from it, it's about just being mad and having targets to attack, and attacking and attacking, and never really letting up. And because it's about attacking, it's like even after the target doesn't deserve their ire anymore, doesn't deserve, you know, anything, they just keep going with the same lines. And I found myself connected with some people when I first got out of Scientology and then kind of moved on, you know, and okay, well, they're doing their thing. I'm going to do mine. And, you know, you just kind of move on. And I have, you know, and John and I, I mean, you know, we, we talk about recovery and moving on and making change and and thriving,
0: thriving survivors.
1: Yeah, and they're not really interested in thriving. They're kind of more into, no, this is all about this fight. and And then, and then the fight just becomes attacking each other. Because the sort of social drama of, of of who's this week's enemy, who's this week's frenemy, and who's, you know, this week's friend, and and the same dramatis personae <laughs> just keep filling all these different roles over time. And I come back to this, you know, I got a little window into it just recently, and I'm like, it's the same people saying the same things they were saying seven, eight, nine years ago. I'm not saying the same shit I was saying seven or eight or nine years ago. And I, and thank God, you know, <laughs> because some of the stuff I was saying seven or eight years ago was kind of ridiculous, you know? So, and you live and you learn and you grow yeah. and you go, okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's be better than we were yesterday. And it's just remarkable how that doesn't happen uh, universally. And I, and I, and I always feel it's a little bit of a shame, you know?
0: Yeah. And it's symptomatic of trauma that, that, <laughs> when- where people have been traumatized, they will seek to traumatize others often. Um, yeah. So, you know, a proportion of um, abused children will go on to become abusers mm. and feel that it's natural and normal behavior to be um, impolite, discourteous and thoroughly nasty. And yeah. I think of it as traumatic rage. So, and, and you're right. I mean, looking at the, you know, I spent a few years on the edge of the Jehovah's Witness ex community, the apostates, as they call mm-hmm. themselves. And I was horrified that, that it was so much of the communication was slagging off, you know, forming into groups and attacking each other rather than spending some time alert, more time focusing on alerting the public to the abuses of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And beyond that, understanding how they had remained involved why they had remained involved what it what it is in our psyches that attracts us and keeps us in such groups i'm sure the you know with the breaking up of the latter day saints uh, mormons that the same thing is happening in that community and and it it's tragic i I'm, i walked into it when i came back because you know back in the old days when um there was just me and jerry armstrong and Larry Wallace and uh, Bob mm-hmm. Penny, uh, you know, be- before even be- before I Exit counseled Vaughan and Stacy Young, you know, imagine that that long ago, and that was in 1993. But it was it was so much more peaceful, uh, <laughs> and the yeah, you know, my my situation was ridiculous. I I I left Scientology because I absolutely, absolutely. believed in Ron Hubbard, and I absolutely did not believe in. Um, the people who were taking over. We didn't even know who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, David Miscavige was first named publicly in 1983, shortly before I left, and he wasn't running it then. Hubbard was, in fact, still running it. I thought Hubbard was gone, and we would got to save this stuff, and pretty soon I was drenched with material about Hubbard's past, which proved beyond any reasonable doubt that he was a con man and a liar. Yep. And um, that, bo- that was enough to bother me. And I then, you know, that pretty soon led to me going, well, look, I can't can't estimate and analyze Scientology while I'm still inside it in my head. So I've got to put it down and I'll take it back piecemeal and look at each principle one by one. So um, I've not adopted anything back in 39 years. I've never wanted to pick up the cans again. Mm -hmm. Every principle that seemed to have any value as Hubbard says, you should look for the original source. And I did. And I wrote about them. There's a paper called Possible Origins for Dianetics and Scientology, which I think is a brilliant title. It's inspired. You know, Russell Miller coming up with something like Barefaced Messiah. What a boring title. <laughs> oh, well, he got me there. Um, but so uh, the thing that, that astonished me was that I could, you know, I remember, I'll say who it was. It was Vicky Ballard, who, who, who I liked. she's a friend. And she'd been the commanding officer of the St. Hill Foundation, and she was still absolutely hooked on this stuff. She later kind of turned state's evidence and went to the newspapers and told them things. Um, But at this time, she was absolutely convinced, and she couldn't understand why I'd sort of gone, I don't want to do this anymore. I'll help you guys. I'll protect you from the mother cult. But I want to know how this worked. I want to know the history. I want to know the biography of Hubbard. And I opened those discussions. You know, um, Steve Kent said that my work's the foundation of modern scholarship on Scientology. I, I mean, I'd look back to Roy Wallace before me and a few other people, but uh, nobody had written a history of Scientology. Nobody's really added to it that much. Tony Ortega's done good work. Chris Owens has done good work. But the overview history, um, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky, remains And it's imitator inside Scientology by Janet Reitman, of course, um, who admits in her reference notes that I'm where she got it all, her her first modern objective history of Scientology, as she called it. Um, But I, I found myself in this conversation with Vicky Ballard where I'm saying, look, in 1965, in my philosophy, we find that he's crippled and blinded with physical injuries to hip and back and injured mm-hmm. optic nerves at the mm-hmm. end of World War II. And yet here in Communication and Isness, the professional auditor's bulletin from the 1950s, we find him saying on July the 25th, 1945, I was feeling sorry for myself because I'd not qualified to be sent overseas. Um, His this time at the Princeton School of Military Government coming before that. Um, And so I went down to Hollywood and got myself in a fight with three petty officers. And I sort of said to him, see, there's a bit of, of, without going into his various other accounts, where, for example, in Look Magazine in 1950, where he said he had no war wounds (laughs) or anything of the type. But how was it that from July the 25th to August the 14th, in the end of the war, he'd become crippled and blinded? Because it certainly wasn't in combat. And how was he able, if he was crippled and blinded at the time, to overcome his injured optic nerves and beat up three petty officers now there are apologists out there still who try to rationalize this and make some sense of it um but vicky ballard was immediate she said he had two bodies and i hadn't thought of that i thought that's quite clever and then i said to her look he he wasn't wounded in combat he never saw combat in world war i've read you know, his entire Navy file, all 800 pages of it. And there is no combat, other than unless you consider him shelling an uninhabited island off exactly. the Mexican coast. That's you know, right. Los That's right. Um, or, or his 55-hour battle with a, a magnetic deposit off Cape Lookout in Oregon. But yeah. I said to her, you know, there's no combat. And she said, oh, yes, he did see combat. And I said, how do you know? And she said, I was with him mm. in my last life. Now, Mm -hmm. this shocked me enough not to say, well, can you name any of the crew members? Can you name the ships? Can you tell us where this happened? It was just, and there was the problem right there. How can you make somebody see sense? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And you can lead a man to slaughter, but you can't make him think. And that became the conundrum for me. That became, you know, so this is 1984, sometime. How do you solve that problem? And I spent ooh, the next many years, um, certainly up until 91, trying to work out the history, the biography, because it's relevant to know what he actually did based mm-hmm. upon what he actually said. You know, I, I cite 150 different sources in Blue Sky. Uh, I think uh, Janet Reitman has seven, one of which is me, one of which is Russell Miller so i you know 150 sources books articles testimony interviews i did but the main contributor more than half the book is ron hubbard you know it's his work it's him saying these things and there are 1200 reference notes in the book so anybody can go and check my sources and see if what i'm saying is is true but why is it and eventually I Came to Cognitive Dissonance, Leon Festinger's incredible work, which most people don't know. was at, His published book, When Prophecy Fails, which is a wonderful and highly readable book, is actually based on the career of a Scientologist. So he was studying a woman who was a trans medium, but was also a Scientologist. So she had a live-in Scientology auditor looking after her while she was channeling, I think he's called Santananda from another planet and he he says right you've got to get all the followers to the hilltop because the world's going to end and we need the mothership to come and rescue you great people the 20 or so of you um and festinger had already infiltrated two people into her group you could do things like that back in the 50s ethical Mm -hmm. committees didn't stop you so he got two graduate students in her group um lying low or laying low, one or the other, and he predicted that those of her followers who went to the hilltop would continue to believe when the mothership didn't show up. I don't know how he knew that the mothership wasn't going to show up, but you know, maybe maybe just uh, a guess. You know, probably just
1: a lucky guess. Yeah, yeah, probably. And so, the pe- so, let me let me back up a second. Did I hear you right that this woman who was connected with this doomsday cult group? Was also getting Scientology auditing?: Yes,
0: yeah, she had a live-in auditor that, and she was the head of the, the group, yeah.
1: Wow, okay, because that's, a, that's, a, that's definitely a new piece of information for me, so that's, mm-hmm. that was fascinating.:
0: yeah, and, and so of course, her thinking was, you know to a large extent conditioned by Ron Hubbard. right. Um, but you know who you know, we will perhaps next time get into the intricacies of the hundreds of splinter groups from Scientology. You know, mm. um, people like you know, Ekin, Cardafri, John, Est, so many yeah. significant groups of yes. you know, uh, re-evaluation co-counseling, which the Open University, the largest university in the world, used for about 20 years. Uh, and it's Harvey Jackins, and who claimed he'd never heard of Dianetics, and yet there are photographs of him shaking hands with Ron Hubbard, who's giving him a certificate. you know. So there, there was all that stuff going on. But my fascination was this cognitive dissonance, this idea that if somebody believes something fervently enough, then the more evidence you provide, the firmer their belief will come, become. And that's what we're seeing in these groups, that, that they are enraged by what happened to them and, and having talked with a number of the people who are engaged in these battles, I can understand why. You know, they, they experience terrible things. But rather than healing from those terrible things and then helping others to heal, which is, I think, has been more your approach, mm-hmm. um, they they have created a kind of, I caught when we were talking before, I to it a piranha pool,
2: mm-hmm.
0: where sides are taken and allegations are hurled and grand conspiracy theories are entertained. And it's a loathsome, awful place. And it's why cults flourish to a large extent because people do become fervent, grab onto an idea, and then, you know, push that idea out. And in this case, we've seen so many weird independent groups. I mean, Tony Ortega keeps his ear to the ground and and reports occasionally on some of the more serious absurdities of these groups. Um, and we've seen so much hatred, so much, you know, I remember years ago talking with, with Otto Ross, who was the first, uh, he was one of only five people trained to the highest level class 12 by Hubbard. And he was the only person to do OT8 before 1988. Uh, under hubbard's direction mm. and so and he was hubbard's auditor he was hubbard's case supervisor and all of this and he was still a fervent believer he was still although he didn't tell them what he was doing his staff in his various organizations around the world were all receiving scientology auditing um he was very glad when the ability meter came out that he didn't have to tape over the word hubbard on the the dial of his e-meter anymore you know,
1: and yeah. got a meter
0: that worked properly you know but in comparison to the Crappy uh, Scientology ones, but so Otto, you know, so his attitude to Scientology and mine were very different. But we were good friends. He thought it was absolutely wonderful. I think it's a way of psychologically and physically enslaving people. Yep, uh, that's my experience. And he said the, the the bad thing about Scientology, having worked with Hubbard very closely uh, for about eight years. He said the bad thing about Scientology is it erodes compassion. And you go, once you've done that, are there any good things? Hmm. Because if you've done that to a human being, what have you got a narcissist, uh, a sociopath, uh, you know yeah. um, and I you know I think that that is what tends to happen, that people become abusive, authoritarian, bullying. And then they go, they leave, and that's all still going on in their heads. And they need uh, I mean, the um the meta psychologists, and I gave them their name. That's that's one of one of the many achievements of my life was that I suggested to Sarge Gabodi that he call his organization meta psychology, using <laughs> Freud's term. I've just opened a book in his library, and there was the word, you know, it's, it's no deep thinking. But they I think they still call a call it traumatic incident reduction and what we're seeing instead is traumatized people production we're seeing you know these people who so have tremendous compassion and even sympathy that outlawed emotion in Scientology uh, I don't think it is actually an emotion as such but um, I have tremendous sympathy for people who've who've been involved with Scientology but come on guys stop bickering and and do something good in the world for a change do I know, and, right. and finally the you know benjamin franklin said we either hang together or we hang separately and while as aaron smith levin points out <clears throat> excuse me when i talk with him he he was like well what are they going to do to you and it's like you want to hear what they do to you I had 16 years solid of harassment from this group on a daily basis, 10 lawsuits, private Mm -hmm. detectives, four people in my personal circle who were reporting on me, you know, and had, you know, all of this, you know, uh, two break-ins, uh, people stealing stuff from me. What can they do to you? With a couple of billion dollars, they can do quite a lot to you. That's right. Aaron's perspective was different because now there are, you know, we, we mentioned the, the late and somewhat eccentric Arnie Lerma mm.
2: um,
0: in our preludium conversation. And Arnie, when asked for a puff for my book, said, before the internet and safety and numbers, there was John Atak. And now there are thousands, literally thousands of people speaking out against Scientology, which is great. But I support what you're doing, which is to analyze and understand this problem and help people who've been affected by it and yeah. understand the broader connotation of authoritarianism, hearing people snarking about their time in Scientology and telling the same story that they told me 10 years ago, 20 years ago, yeah, they've not healed. They've not healed. And, and that's, that's an awful thing.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I think, I I could not agree with you more about that. And I look at it from my perspective of, you know, I talk an awful lot about emotional needs. That's a very important framing for me to understand psychologically what's going on with people, you know, because, because it's not just about critical thinking and coming to, you know, some conclusions or some, some, some ideas, you know, about this uh, leads me to think that maybe some people you know, are going to cloak themselves in that cognitive dissonance, and it's so comfortable, it's so appealing for them. It provides such answers or security or comfort to them for whatever reason, that they just can't let it go. They just can't let it go, even though they're angry and on tirades all the time, and seem to be these little hate monsters. It's really coming out of this, you know, this insecurity and this sort of like, you know, this problem. And, I think that there's something um, I think there's something really awful when we look at Scientology specifically in regards to this and the history and of 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 these of any Scientologist because what is it doing, as you mentioned? It's psychological enslavement, right? It's like We've broken this down in talking about brainwashing a couple weeks ago and thought reform and what is it that's actually happening there? Well, you deprive somebody of enough food, enough sleep for over a, a short enough period of time, you can get them to say and think just about anything you want. You know, you add physical deprivation on there and punishment drive and trauma bonding where you're rewarding and punishing and punishing and then you reward a little bit and you punish some more. And you can get somebody into a pretty pretty bad place. But the bottom thing on that, or or at least the way I think about it, is there's also another little thing being trained in there. And I wanted to get your, your thoughts on this. And it has to do with that certainty thing. Oh, yeah. Scientology, right? It's all about science of certainty. And we're going to be positively sure we're going to know something and we're going to know it so well, we're going to have it with such certainty that we will never, ever have to ever entertain the idea of questioning our rightness, Mm -hmm. our inherent goodness, our intent, because we're on this path of such incredible meaning, of such incredible purpose. Saving the world, <laughs> Sa- becoming gods, mm. you know which which really is what Scientology is promising is it's promising Godhood, not yeah, a small, not a small order, right mm. not not a small goal when people who get into Scientology are going for it in the biggest way possible. Mm. and um, and even if you're not all about the Godhood, even if you're like, well, I didn't really believe that. Well, what is in Scientology? What does it offer you power and influence over others, the ability to dominate other people, especially in the Sea Org? Using
0: magic, fundamentally, using your, your intentions to control other people without their
1: consent. Exactly. Tone 40, right? Mm -hmm. Intention without reservation. Mm -hmm. You will you will be the one in the driver's seat. And everybody else, as L. Ron Hubbard wrote in his own affirmations, everybody else will be your slave. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're
0: his slaves. (laughs) Yeah, his
1: slaves, right? I mean, that was really what it was all about. Yeah. And people get into this. And so maybe not everybody who gets involved is about the altruistic messaging of saving the world. Maybe some people get into this because, you know, for more, maybe more selfish reasons, and those for them are very valid, right? But what does it do? Whether it's that person or whether it's a, somebody like a you or a me, it's still giving us this base of certainty that, you know what, everything you think is right. Everything you think, it's true because you thought it. What's true for you is true. Right, exactly. It's building on that base, right? And it's building it through psychological manipulation, through propaganda techniques, through thought reform. I mean, all the different stuff, but it's building this, this sort of foundation of certainty, unreasonable certainty. But and- not
0: in, in the L. Ron Hubbard redefinition of the, the term unreasonable.
1: No, not that definition, but it is an unreasonable certainty because it's an unthinking, unquestioning, you know, unassailable certainty. And I think, you know, and I think people come out stuck in that. Oh, and how, you know, and it takes a long ass time to break that down. And there's people who you just don't have their cooperation in breaking it down. They don't want to give that up. I That's, don't know that they would even think about it that way. But what, what do you think?
0: I think you're right. They, they don't frame it that way because they have cognitive dissonance. Now, right. I, I personally love cognitive dissonance. I, I'm old enough and foolish enough to have realized that when I start feeling uneasy about something that somebody is saying, there is a challenge for me. And the challenge you know, what we normally do is bat it away, you know, and say, you're wrong because of this, cut them up on some details or, you know, find some way around what they're saying, which mm-hmm. I frequently did as a Scientologist when, you know, friends and relatives were concerned about my involvement. I was, I was, I, I didn't use thought stopping. I didn't chant something to myself to not hear them. I took on their arguments head on. So, you know, when, um, Christopher Evans wrote Cults of Unreason, and I, you know, as a Scientologist, I read what I wanted to read. <laughs> um, so I read that. I read um, you know, various uh, texts along the way. Roy Wallace's Road to Total Freedom, what no. have you. Um, and in reading Christopher Evans, it, he, he said, well, Aaron Hubbard seems to have become disinterested in Scientology in this period. So I just went to the tech volumes and the policy volumes and went, well, he's wrong. He was still interested. It's But you going, what does it matter whether he was interested or not? He then criticizes Hubbard as a science fiction writer. And of course, Evans himself would later be a successful science fiction writer. So the idea that you can't trust somebody. So you're looking at the peripheral stuff rather than, is it screwing people up? Is it, you know, does Scientology cause better relationships in the world? Does it actually cause a more ethical approach towards humanity? And what you said about, you know the the motivation for people becoming involved. There are a number of groups of people who'll be vulnerable, but one group are seekers, such as myself. I came from Buddhism and was interested in mysticism in the proper sense of the word, not the popular sense. Um, and another group will be salespeople mm-hmm. and uh, con artists. And I've yeah. known so many Scientologists who fitted into that particular category, but they will come. We come to it. I, I was. I think a reasonably compassionate human being when I arrived and what will then happen is even if you do have the best motivation and you're not seeking to be a God, so you can blow up your enemies or the people who've annoyed you, uh, but you're doing it for the good of mankind. It will erode compassion. You will, you'll have no sympathy towards people. You'll fundamentally become a hardcore Republican. You'll become somebody who who thinks that everything that happens to you is your own responsibility, and that you've got to look after it. The state and anybody else shouldn't be involved. There should be no welfare. And exactly. right. I mean, Hubbard took it to the extreme in Signs of Survival, where he's pretty much saying there should be no democracy. That the only people who should have the vote are Scientologists. You
1: know? That's right. That's right. And he did actually say that. That was not. We're we're not exaggerating with that. No. He was very clear says that yeah. clears should be the people deciding things right mm-hmm. and and us riffraff you know and those people in the one one band and anybody who's got a physical deformity i mean he was he was ready to start loading people in the trains it was mm-hmm. it's really and it's not hard to find it it's right there in the text
0: yeah anybody below 2.0 antagonism on his emotional tone scale should not have the right to vote yeah and then you go on to the more hidden doctrine in Scientology, which is that everybody who is not a Scientologist is below zero on the tone scale. Yes. I mean, below death. I mean, and this, is, this is a man who said that hiding was an emotion and yeah. it was at minus eight, and he spent most of his life doing
1: it. You know? Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and it's all predicated on this very twisted. I mean, it's, it's so manipulative. It is, it is such a subtle... I mean, when you think about it, when we put it in these terms, it's not subtle. But I'll tell you, when I was at the receiving end of it, it sure was. And it's this subtle manipulation of you're so screwed up, you don't even know how screwed up you are. But you sure are lucky to have arrived at our door because we're going to unscrew you, uh, you know, and we're the only ones who can.
0: If you knew what was wrong with you, it wouldn't be wrong with you. It's, you you know, so if you've got a broken leg, you don't know it
1: and 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 the broken leg, or or maybe you do know you have a broken leg, but what's really wrong is your headache that you don't know about, right? Yeah. And you've got the broken leg because
0: of something you don't know about, which is a motiva- It's a motivator because you committed an overt. And around Absolutely. and around we go. Um, there is, yes, yeah, so much on this the the um Conway and Siegelman, in their interesting study of cult snapping, I, I don't agree with their conclusions. Mm. um but I do think they provide a tremendous amount of insight. So, you know, they're worth reading. And they said that Scientology has the most debilitating set of rituals of any group in America. Words to that effect. They may have used the word cult, in fact, rather than group. But the most debilitating set of rituals and the recovery from the Krishna's, the Moonies, three months, six months, recovery from Scientology, 12 and a half years. I was in touch with them that That was they first published in 78. The new edition was 1990. I was in touch with them five or six years ago. And I said, uh, the 12 and a half years was a guess, right? I said, yeah, said uh, the reality is that you don't. Most people won't recover because Scientology has built into it. um, The. um, Reinforcement. Uh, So if you went through a Chinese brainwashing camp and you're not in China anymore, It'll all evaporate.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you have to either put people into an environment that reinforces their reinforces their belief, or make it self reinforcing. There um, it is. I talked That's... a little bit about this with Steve Hassan last week, and and this, you know, the training routine zero, staring at people. You do that; it puts you into a state of mind, and that state of mind. It took me I had nine years in Scientology. Took me six months to get rid of the the predator stare. Six months. Because it was such a I was so used to the locked-on eye contact and didn't understand that it it intimidates people. It's not a healthy form of counseling, but it puts you into a state of mind. It puts and the thing I especially noticed was that by not staring at people, I noticed a lot more about them. The staring is an internal state where, you know, we get the Gansfeld effect where, you know, you start to see things moving and colors and all of that, and you don't think straight. And it's one of many techniques. I mean, the, the idea of asking a question, you know, <laughs> that, that you're meant to do that flip, at the, that, that you are conditioned into behaving in certain ways so that your own internal reality, the way you interpret the world, is changed. That's right. And that persists it doesn't just go away when you say i'm no longer a scientologist it persists and it's kind of interesting because i've really got on a soapbox in the last couple of years about the internal enemy this idea that you've got demons body thetans Mm -hmm. or an unconscious mind or an id or something that you don't know about that's inside you and i think this is a terrible deception there isn't an agent inside you. There isn't a person or a being inside you, invisible to you, directing your actions as Scientology and Catholicism and so many other things teach. The, you know, the Tibetans do it too with their uh, gadons and the Jews have dibuks and the, the Muslims have genies or jinns. Um, all of these little beings that 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 are meant to be. These don't exist, but processes, unconscious processes routines that have been set up, ways of thinking, neural pathways, if we want to get into the say yeah. clever about it. That stuff yeah. all does exist. And if you don't look at it and understand it, there isn't a way of overcoming it. You can't hypnotize yourself out of believing these things. You want to look at the beliefs and say, is this true?
1: Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't have put that better myself. Absolutely for sure. In fact, I'll add to that that I think that is one of the reasons that you see in Scientology specifically so much stress by Hubbard on the training side of Scientology, not just on the auditing side. There are two paths. There are two aspects of the path. It is a singular path to the brainwashing or or mind control of Scientology and that is learning Scientology and then having Scientology applied to you through the processes of auditing And both are necessary to get the full effect of Scientology, which is that self reinforcing mechanism where you are taught to believe the world is a certain way. There's a duality in your mind, for example. There's a reactive mind, and there's you, the thetan, or the analytical analytical mind. mind, Right? And this duality exists, and there is a triumvirate of. Of mind body spirit and this mind is separate from you and the body is not you you are this other thing which cannot be seen felt or experienced or measured in any way except through physical you know its effects on the physical world Can and you, you
0: measure a dog by its biscuits as Alron Hubbard <laughs> so sagely put it oh.
1: yeah you're basically called upon to have faith in this concept and it's a fundamental axiom one it's the very first thing in scientology that you have to take on faith in order for the rest of it to make any sense and as long as you buy into that principle everything else becomes a lot easier to buy into it's a series of of agreements you're buying into and they're trained into you and even the training process the trs the staring you were talking about right That, that we've gone on about the misunderstood word thing about all the stress on words and the um the, just so many mechanisms are installed through the training and even training is hypnotizing you in a way or it's putting you into this altered state of being we could say, and uh, you know Gansfield effect is one aspect of this. Open openness to suggestibility is another one I will dare say I will put out there, right? Because Except,
0: accepting you know. directions from a person who is considered to be authoritative, Hubbard himself explained this in some detail. When you give somebody altitude over you, they become a hypnotic operator. Those are his words. So yep. once you believe somebody is an authority, then you won't think about the instruction they're giving you. So, um this opens up so much. I, you know, there is so much here for both of us to say, I think, from our experience yes. and our, our, our reading. Yes. But the, I think the essential point, if there is one simple thing that everybody in the world could understand, that would be the nature of feelings of knowing, feelings of certainty. William James, who will always be relevant to this conversation, called yes. the father of modern psychology, and he is certainly one of them, one of the really important people, absolute genius, a remarkable man who, for, for any um, atheist watching this, actually had all sorts of spiritual beliefs and was a founder of both the British and American societies for psychical research. And um, there's a great book called Ghost Hunters about James and the foundation of those societies and the work they did, which almost had me believing. You know, so you know, <laughs> quite amazing. But one of the things he ex- he put forward this concept that he calls noesis, n o, two dots e s i s. The two dots is to say that you say the two vowels separately. Noesis, rather than nosis mm. <laughs> See, we learn something new every minute. Um, but his his idea is that there is actual certainty, possibly. But most of what we consider to be absolutely true comes from the feeling that it is true. And when we examine it, there may be no evidence whatsoever for that belief. This is where Ron Hubbard is putting you. Your internal reality says, Ron Hubbard is right. What would Ron do? And you go, well, he'd he'd grab the money and run away. (laughs) That's an easy question to answer. What would Ron do? That's right. (laughs) That's what he did his whole life. But, That's right. So we find, I find ourselves with that conundrum that, and and I, you saw me at Toronto in 2015 doing it. I've been doing it ever since. I have one story from when I was 17, and this, I spent two hours, who knows, discussing the Gospels with a born-again Christian who had stopped me on the street for this purpose. And as he backed away from me to make sure I didn't jump on his back and rip him to pieces, and I was perfectly courteous and polite to him, but I confused him a little bit. And he walked away from me back to where, and he said, "I don't understand the Bible, but I know it's all true." Now, that is a feeling of certainty.
1: That's it. That's it right there. And that is what you gain power from in Scientology. There's social credit for that. there's uh, you know, in that you gain the admiration of your fellows you gain money you gain influence with people to the degree that you are buying into all of this and saying with such surety that it's all true who who in scientology certainly when you and i got in who was more revered than an ot Mm -hmm. You know, the OTs were the gods. And if anybody
0: would like to revere me, I am OT5, by the way. So I am deserving (laughs) of a significant amount of reverence, I think.
1: (laughs) Well, okay, John. Um, But isn't it interesting how you can switch that culturally within Scientology and yet the same emotions are still at play? Because now OTs are still highly regarded, auditors are almost completely disregarded in today's scientology culture they used to be also considered gods i'm um, walking amongst us right especially the class eights uh in if you were 12, 12 12 you were like i mean there were a handful of those i never even met i met like there were one, f-
0: 56 of them
1: yeah Very in close. all the well in all the years i was in scientology i met like one or two mm. yeah. um but now it's all about financial status, right? Oh, who's Absolutely. contributed the most, right? Now, those are the gods who walk amongst us in the Scientology world the you know, the, the, the Duggins and the Grant Cardone's and the, you know, the Michael Chan's and these guys who are, who are uh, revered for, you know, their ability to make money. It's all just raw money now.
0: Yeah, but, but money and, is the measure of spirituality and goodness, isn't it, Chris?
1: Well, that's what they'll tell you. And Grant Cardone will certainly translate money equals success and money equals certainty. And it's because I'm so certain and I'm so tone 40, I'm so on it, right? I mean, this is the standard tech bro Mm -hmm. sales pitch for crypto and get rich sales techniques and and the multi-level marketing. This is far from just a Scientology thing. Mm but it is this but this point really needs to be made uh, that you've made and harped on a bit more of it's an emotional place it's not a knowledge place mm-hmm. that surety that certainty it's empowering and there's a per- certain point where it should be but then there's a point where it gets dialed up too far where it can't ever be questioned where your emotional need has gotten to a place where if it's wrong or if it's somehow proven to be wrong or if it's questioned in some way somehow you feel the person you know d- d- taking this too far feels that it somehow threatens their very identity their very their themselves as a person or Absolutely. their value or their worth Right. It threatens it if you take it away from them or question it somehow. And Mom, that, Dad,
0: and Apple Pie are all threatened.
1: That's right. And I think that's, that's what Hubbard point said. Where it goes too far. So um, so isn't it interesting how all the techniques of Scientology, if you're gonna kind of, you know, do a super reductionist here. I mean, there's lots and lots of control techniques, but so much of what Scientology is about is trying to. Manipulate you unreasonably into that exact emotional place,
0: hmm. and the and a significant way of doing that is the double bind. The, you know the idea of the two terminal universe yes. that everything is reduced to positive and negative, black and white, and perversely, of course, in the appendix to Science of Survival in 1951, Hubbard talks about the different forms of logic. So there's single valued logic, which is the will of God. We could also substitute for that the will of Ron. Single-valued logic. You do what Ron says. Then you have dual-valued logic, where you've got the terminals. And then he talks about multi-valued logic, which he probably got from uh, Kozybski. That's probably mm-hmm. this idea of shades of grey, and there are more than fifty, by the way.
1: Um, <laughs> yes, the, infinite number.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. infinity-valued logic, which is never spoken about again. And so you've got this incredible situation where you've got the very thing that he is most significantly criticising, single-valued logic, you just do as you're told, authoritarianism, uh, slavery, mental and physical, that it becomes, you will become absolutely self-determined as long as you agree with everything I think and say. You'll be thinking and saying completely independently when you do exactly what you're told. And that is the foundation of Scientology,
2: That's to, that.
0: to make you into what was, you know, it's rather nasty, but what, what was called for some time a rondroid. Um, could, be, could have been called Androns, you know, you could have gone the other way with it. But um, this concept of zombifying people, of taking away their freedom of choice and you know, and the con- the contradiction is writ large in the code of the Sea Org member because you promise to follow and uphold
1: command yeah, intention. I promise to uphold, forward, and carry out command intention there point one. That's right for
0: one thousand million years. After which, I will be allowed to become self determined. <laughs> oh, Actually. and here you were in Dianetics saying anybody can do this in a month, and now it's like I've got to do what a thousand million years and then you'll let me go and i can i can be my my own person again because of all the desperation of clearing the planet the the galaxy the universe which they're not doing very well with um i also have frequently pointed out that what's true for you is true which is kind of postmodernism. modernism it, you know when <laughs> postmodernism, know. when that moves away from being a, a, a way of a method of literary deconstruction and becomes a view of life. It's like, well, what I think about gravity is as important as what Einstein thinks about gravity. I don't understand special relativity or general relativity, but my opinion's is as good as his. So we have a democracy of opinion instead of a science. Now, right. what's true for you is true. What a ridiculous nonsense. It doesn't make something true just because you choose to believe it. Because you choose to believe in that eric cartman is really the truth tooth fairy which i do believe by the way (laughs) it doesn't make it so um because you believe in santa claus it doesn't make it so and because you believe l hubbard is the savior of mankind he proved he wasn't he absolutely proved it because in him of asia where he says am i Matea?" the answer is no The Book of the Great Decease, which is the only Buddhist original text, which talks about Maitreya or Maitreya, the future Buddha, says he will save all of mankind and take us into Nirvana, or Nibbana if you prefer the the Pali and don't want to think about Kurt Cobain. He will take us all into Nibbana. He didn't. He died. It's done. He wasn't Maitreya. So we still, and all of the stuff in there about, you know, the prophecy of having red hair, being born in the West, it being two and a half thousand years after the Buddha. Those are lies. That was the first thing I checked in the first week I got into Scientology. I wrote to the Pali Text Society because I was a Buddhist. And they said, no, there isn't. Since then, I've read the Book of the Great Decease. There is no such prophecy. What's more, the original text of him of Asia didn't read Am I Matea. The man who put it together, John Sanborn, when I introduced, interviewed him he said hubbard gave me this in 1954 and said publish it and i wouldn't because it said i am a mateo and eventually in the 70s he twigged it, if he just switched it to a question that he could publish this rather peculiar you know if you see me dead i will then live forever but you will see a world in flames well that didn't prove to be true either not quite yet oh, there have yeah. been some bad forest fires since he died but a world in flames a bit of an exaggeration
1: a bit of an exaggeration exactly and so much so interestingly that hymn of asia is a property you cannot buy at a church of scientology anymore they have yeah. quietly retired that one and it's not a the world
0: of- will end in 1914 the world will end in 1917 the world will end <laughs> yeah i think it's 2033 currently for the Jehovah's witnesses but but yeah, yeah. that, that- but the, the origin of what's true for you is true. He says this is a Buddhist idea and it took me a little while to figure out. He's mm. talking about the Kalama Sutta where the Buddha says, not don't believe... Sutra. No, not the Karma Sutra, but the Kalama Sutta. Uh-huh. What a dirty mind you
1: have.
0: It's not a perfumed garden. It's not a sex book. You know, The, the Buddha's sex book. You know, But again, in Buddhism, you've got Tantra. And I'm sure the Buddha would go, "What? You you can have sex to become enlightened? Well, there's a wishful piece of thinking. (laughs) It's like you know, you can sit and eat fish and chips until you explode on the toilet like Elvis (laughs) Presley. But you know, there are different religious practices, different people. The Kalama Sutta, and we'll probably stick a, a a link to it somewhere. Basically, the Buddha says, "Don't believe what your parents tell you. Don't believe what your teachers tell you. Don't believe what the priests tell you. Don't believe." what a spirit whispers in your ear don't believe what the gods tell you don't believe what i tell you check it out and so hubbard's got this well you know think it through for yourself and it'll be true because you believe it's true the buddha was more inclined towards a more scientific way of looking at the world check it test it observation experiment experiment. not just oh that feels right i'll believe it You know, which is
1: isn't it? Isn't it interesting that the same guy, because you mentioned double binds earlier, so I got to say this while it's still on my mind, is yes. Here's exactly the here's exactly the attitude, and almost word for word, what you just said is something Mm -hmm. Hubbard said in a few lectures in the early days. He wasn't saying this shit later on, but early Mm -hmm. on, he was saying, you know, take it or leave it. You know, here's the knowledge. And uh, it was Scientology and Effective Knowledge lecture where he talked about this. He said that, you know, ever since uh, when Buddha came around, you know, it was it was this it was this philosophical approach and it was a take it or leave it. You don't have to. You know, I'm not going to ram this down your throat. And he said ever since then, ever since the Buddha said that stuff, we've had all these institutions and all these organizations and the Christian church and all this stuff who absolutely positively are not that way, they will shove it down your throat every chance they get. And Scientology is the one thing that comes along since Buddha to say the same thing and adopt this philosophy. And I have to point- 20th
0: century Buddhism.
1: Yeah, exactly. But then we have to point out the very obvious fact that Hubbard's just created another goddamn double bind because here he is talking about freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of belief, take it or leave it if you want it. If it's true for you, it's true. If it's not true for you, screw it. And he takes this kind of, you know, laissez-faire sort of whatever approach. And then he contrasts that with the definition of ethics. The purpose of ethics is to Remove any counter intention from the environment. And once that's accomplished, to remove any other intention from the environment. In other words, if you're thinking anything counter to what Scientology is all about, or if you're thinking anything other than what Scientology is all about, you're off the goddamn rails, you're out ethics, and we're going to punish you with this long list of crimes. I'm not even exaggerating. That's exactly what it says. This is called a double bind. It's one is, you know, you have one value over here and you have the exact opposite value Mm -hmm. or rule being expressed over here. And you're stuck in the middle. You figure out how this makes sense. It doesn't make sense. It binds you in the cognitive dissonance of trying to make it make sense and you can't really ever resolve it. And that is the anatomy of crazy making. That's how you create psychosis.
0: Absolutely, and the the, the point is that if you're given conflicting instructions, it will paralyze you. Right. And uh, I mean, this is the one Hubbard quotation I cannot find. And I've talked with so many people about it, but I remember reading him mm. explaining, and I thought it was in the false purpose rundown materials where he's saying, you know, if you have conflicting ideas, you won't know what to do, and you'll go to an authority source to tell you what to do. So, and that in Scientology is, is fundamental. The conflict with Buddhism and the proof absolute that Scientology is not a form of Buddhism appears, as far as I know, in only one paragraph, and that paragraph is Route Two Process Forty Seven, mm. uh, certainty
1: R Two Forty Seven. Yeah. So
0: sorry, it's called separateness. And it's Mm -hmm. in the creation of human ability. And he says that this is the process that proves that we are not a single mass of theta, but that we are individuals. Now, the fundamental principle upon which all of Buddhism, even if you're like me and you don't, you know, you think that Mahayana and Theravadim are not the same thing at all. You know, Mahayana is not a form of Buddhism. I don't care what people say, it's not what the Buddha taught. But Mm. Putting that aside, we can talk about that some other time. The fundamental principle, the enlightenment that leads you to nirvana, is the realization of anatta, which is there is no self. Hubbard is asserting in R247, there is a self. So it isn't Buddhism. It isn't about the dissolution of self. In fact, it's about the elevation of the self. It's about creating, creating... narcissists, you know, yeah. sociopaths. So yeah. yeah.
1: Cool. So we, well, we, we and, yeah. and, and isn't that and it's the and I think we're talking here about we're describing and giving examples here of the double bind of, you know, that it's crazy making, it's paralysis inducing, it's hypnotic. Um, which is really kind of the fundamental thing here that we're talking about is is how is, how do we, when we talk about Scientology being hypnotic, when we talk about it using hypnotic techniques, what are we talking about? Well, this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about a stopwatch in front of somebody's eyes and a, oh, you were feeling sleepy. That's, that is not the kind of hypnotic induction we're talking about in Scientology. No. We're talking about this kind of thing. Because you're trying to create a state of mind where a person is suggestible, where they are manipulatable. And if you throw this kind of crap at people, you get them all stirred up in a cognitive dissonant state, then you are to that degree controlling them. You're manipulating them.
0: You're, you're... directing you're their thoughts, their, right. their beliefs, and therefore their activities, the things that they will do, which is make as much money as they can to give to Ron Hubbard. Which okay. is the fundamental flow of Scientology.
2: <laughs> That's that, right.
0: Let's let's get into the the meat of this. That mm. the, the the most one of the most dangerous words in our language, or two of the most dangerous words, hypnosis and hypnotism. Because everybody knows what they mean. And so they don't have to think. They are what are called thought-terminating cliches by Robert J. Lifton. Because it, it is. It's that Svengali-Trilby image of the the watch, and that stuff does work. There is some efficacy. We've we've put up the captive minds, hypnosis and beyond video, which has uh, shows that the fashions of the early nineteen eighties were pretty huge lapels, might be, but it's got some very interesting material in it showing, you know, what stage hypnosis or deep trance hypnosis is. You know, everybody's an orchestra, everybody's a chicken. You know, this kind of stuff,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that That does exist that there are a percentage of people who will respond immediately hypnotists stage hypnotists you'll often see this they'll check for somebody's susceptibility That's and right. once they've realized once they've sorted the person out who can be put into this state of mind, which I think people wrongly call trance, they will usually just touch them here and away they will go. faith healers do it, speaking of stage hypnotists but what do we actually mean by this thing? That The word hypno- hypnosis was developed, devised by a man called James Braid, who was a Scottish doctor in the 1840s, I think, somewhere around there. It's not that it hadn't been done. The Hindu traditions and the Muslim traditions have uh, practices, and the Buddhist traditions have practices that we would call hypnotherapy that go back centuries. But it only seemed to erupt in the West when Anton Mesmer came along and told people about um animal magnetism, you know mm-hmm. this this magnetic stuff that you could get people to do these crazy things um We've already mentioned Benjamin Franklin, he was on the committee that found mesmer to be a fraud, um which was unfortunate because in fact Mesmer had touched on something that that would become very interesting. Braid comes along and looks at this and he calls it hypnosis, and hypnos means sleep, he thought it was a a sleep state. It isn't. We now have neural imaging that shows that in the, um, states that we would call hypnotic, that people would call trance, quite different things are going on in the brain from what happens during sleep and Mm -hmm. quite different Mm -hmm. things from what happens in other states. So let me put forward, I think I disagree with everybody on this topic. Mm -hmm. um i i've tried to understand it when i left scientology i i think it was probably bandler and grinder the founders of neuro linguistic programming an interesting Mm -hmm. set of devilish techniques that that they it was their book frogs into princes various of my friends three of my friends went and did nlp courses and i was fascinated by the negative transformation of all three of them Mm. It was no doubt there were people I knew, and doing those courses was harmful to them. Um, it made them less compassionate. Again, it it, it made them more selfish. Um, and indeed, one of the three friends realised that and stopped doing it as a consequence. Mm. But reading Frogs into Princes by Bandler and Grinder introduced me to this world of hypnosis. And the first realization was that whatever word we used to describe this, I'd been highly trained to do this um, on the auditor courses I'd done. And there is a rumor, and it was bounced back at me just the other week, that I did no training in Scientology. And I'd just like to make it clear that I did six major auditor courses. Uh, and, you know, I'm a class two auditor. I'm a Dianetic auditor. I'm a method one auditor. I have certificates to prove it. I also did the data series evaluators course, which is the big one, and very few people do. And
1: I realized... Oh, those I, are all major courses. I've done them. I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I,
0: I had nine years of, of doing this and, and reading extensively in Hubbard literature, more than is on the courses. And I realized I'd been highly trained to manipulate people. I'd been trained to put them into states of mind that would make them more manipulable now yeah. the simplest one of these see, I, yeah yeah and you see I, I object to the term altered state which is so commonly used the, uh. the the book by charles tart which was a major reason that hypnosis started to be studied again in the 60s and is an excellent book is called altered states now for a state to be altered, you'd have to have a basic resting state first. There'd be a state that you were in, and all of the other states would be altered from that state. That's not how we work. We have many different states of consciousness, um, and it isn't as complicated as it as it seems. So, our emotions are states of consciousness. We view the world, you know, when we're elated, in one way; when we're terrified or angry, in another. Now, Hubbard listed these but didn't really explain what he was up to oddly enough in manipulating our emotions and getting us to mimic emotions getting us to pretend to be angry and pretend to you know go above somebody on the tone scale or below them to manipulate them into the emotional level you want particularly when you're recruiting them and you want to to get fear of um sorry the the need for change and the the idea oh sure fear of worsening you want that's the one you really want to hit the ruin that this will just get worse and worse so it's manipulation it's a way of changing somebody's state so that they meet you on the street and you talk with them and you want to bring them down you want to get them in an emotional state where they are vulnerable and can be recruited that's Mm -hmm. what it's about i was never willing to do that um I, I would not take somebody's tone down. You know, mm-hmm. That was that seemed to me wrong and manipulative. Um, but it's part of the dissemination drill. It's part of, of how it's meant to be done. So right. these states of mind, among them is elation, euphoria, call it what you will. And this is a non-rational state when you've oh wow man it's really fantastic I'm really high that's absolutely great you ain't thinking straight yeah. now it's okay to be elated you know I was saying that um yesterday I saw a wonderful polyphonic choral performance in a church with eight singers singing all this stuff. I was elated it was fantastic but I didn't have to sign any away <laughs> any money <laughs> I'd paid for my ticket and I didn't have to give my devotion. to to the singers afterwards and and enslave myself to them. I was able to just enjoy it and walk away. The end phenomena of Scientology processes, almost all of them, is a cognition, some sort of insight or revelation, and very good indicators, meaning elation, meaning euphoria. This is a standard effect of hypnosis, of it. You know, somebody can get you to into a state where you're euphoric, you're euphoric, you won't think as well as you do, you know, it won't be cool, calm reasoning anymore. So it's time to write your success story, which is a way of rigidifying the belief that you've achieved something, you know, by making a testimonial, it's a well-known psychological form that once you've committed to an idea, you've got to stick with it. And then we'll take you to the registrar and get some more money out of you. So... There's this process of getting people high now, I realized after a significant amount of inquiry, that Hubbard's got this little trick going on that works faith healers do this too. You will get the adrenaline surge, the opioid release, you know if we want to get it might have something to do with serotonin, though that's been highly questioned in the last year. It might have something to do with oxytocin that too has been highly questioned, so it could be brain chemicals we can. Put it off on that and sound like we're clever but the reality is you get high and then you want to get high again because that's what junkies do and that's what scientology is that's also what the rage traumatized rage process is. people who just keep on attacking somebody it's making them feel superior it's making that, them
1: and that, that's where we were going earlier with that whole certainty thing is when you are hepped up on that emotion of certainty that is arrogance. Yeah, that's 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 a description of what that word means at an at an emotional level. Is such certainty that you can't even fathom the idea that you could be questioned or that you could be wrong.
0: Yeah, you absolutely. that the, and this becomes self righteousness. I'm all right. for the idea of righteousness.
1: That's right. Um, That's was- right. And, you can, and try to fight back against that when somebody's in that headspace, right? It's hard. It's hard to engage with somebody in that headspace, whether it's a rage-filled or an awe filled It's still that emotional center of uh, no, there is nothing about what I'm thinking right now that could possibly be wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's and the added benefit of the state is. It's incapable of questioning itself. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I talk about it. Critical thinking just takes a back seat here. It's not even in the picture because of that emotional center of it feels so goddamn good to be right. And it's playing on one of the most fundamental aspects of our entire existence, which is that survive, that, that being right is about getting into the future, successfully yeah that's it's all goal oriented in that direction even if you're not necessarily wording it or thinking about it that way that's what it's feeding if you want it's you know we look at it and we go my god how could somebody be that way because it's just about the best way to feel that you could that a human being has that's why you know there's nothing the person's not telling themselves in the moment something's wrong here it's the exact opposite is happening you know which is why they'll fight you so hard when you try to present a cult member in that state with facts and reason and go hey buddy you know check this out they're not even in the same universe as you in that moment you know yeah
0: and 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 that you know again this this raises so many important ideas um i haven't read it but i've been told that immanuel kant said there is the world around us but we each of us live in our own representation of that world. And that what? is a
1: true statement. Yes, absolutely. And of
0: course, Scientologists agree with this. You have your own universe. Though I think they should look up the word universe and
2: they'll <laughs> yeah. find it it's not <laughs>
0: correct. It's word. not a whole system of created things, but let's not worry yeah. about that.
1: No. So, it's a it's a it's a weird idea, Scientologists take that too, you know. But,
0: but it it is relevant that we, you know, and, and again, it's Kozibsky who tremendously influenced early Hubbard. Um, we're told that he actually wasn't able to read um, Science and Sanity and Science of Survival is, is riffing in the title of that. And so it was explained to him by A. E. Van Vogt, the brilliant science fiction writer who gave up writing for the rest of his life to practice Dianetics. I was in touch with him in the 1980s. And as a kid, I, I just he was just such a great storyteller and he stopped doing that. So, I, you know, that's Hubbard's fault. That's a bad thing. But he'd studied, you know, the world of Nolet, his novel is is about general semantics and Korzybski. And Sarah, the bigamist second wife, I had no second wife, according to Aaron Hubbard, Um, just a first and a third. Um, She, too, had studied general semantics. And so you get this idea, the map is not the territory. But we live in the map. So my... Perception and my interpretation are all highly conditioned. You know, um, look at language. The, the, what a word may stimulate in one person and in another. I was uh, a friend came to visit me many many years ago uh, when I was still in Scientology, and I had a. I think I was playing Joni Mitchell's court and Spark, and he said, "Oh, could you take that off?" I said, "Why? It's beautiful." He said, "No, I, I had a bad acid trip, and there was a Joni Mitchell album on, and he said, ah, associative thinking.'" each one of us has this set of reactions that belong to us because they you know it might remind the little fish that it was swimming in brown water when the bad thing happened That's we right. might think right. we might think of it in those terms but the reality is that we each have a an incredible wealth of experience and interpretation much of which is wrong and that will lead us into um serious difficulties that when we first met Yuval Lahore which was at, in Toronto when, when you and I first met in June 2015 mm-hmm. he had already developed this and he started by encountering Scientology as, as a young man and going wow how can people be this crazy this is fascinating you know he's <laughs> quite a rational sort of person yeah. and he then um, attended a lecture by Eva yablonka one of the great evolutionary thinkers of our time who was one of the the group of people who overthrew dawkins selfish gene idea back Mm. in the 90s you know so no young biologist believes that that it's you know we're just you know perpetuating our genes that's what's going on what they worked out was that you can write on genes you can change them you've got epigenetics but you've also Mm. got cultural transmission and so what Yuval had done was to bring together his obsession with Scientology and other cults, and why do people behave this way? How are they so easily taken in? With the new evolutionary ideas about um, love, attachment, how the family works, and I heard these ideas with you know significant appreciation. And I'm in fact editing his manuscript, manuscript of his book at the moment, and we so we spent the last nearly eight years talking about these wonderful ideas. But very soon on, I said to him, look, you've got parent-child, child-parent, teenager-parent, quite an interesting separation, baby-parent, sibling-sibling. You've got all of these familial relationships, and then you've got the notion of domestication, that human beings are, like cats and dogs, domesticated, trained animals. We're not you know, wild animals anymore. We've got all sorts of conventions we have to live to. But I said, mm-hmm. where is infatuation in this model? And he eagerly went off and studied it. It's called limerence by psychologists and added it into his model. We are talking about the need to be infatuated. I want to get high, you know, I want to <laughs> fall in love. I, you know, I've, I've just ordered this thing on Amazon and, and it felt so great when I was ordering it. Now it's arrived, I'm a bit bored. So I'll order something else. We are slaves to novelty, slaves to experience, you know, the thrill-seeking which as as we've talked about this before, this won't lead to enlightenment or satisfaction, but it's fine getting some pleasure being you know being a puritan is is no fun whatsoever. The idea you can have a miserable existence on earth, so you can go and live in a miserable heaven. It just doesn't appeal to me at all. so we should have pleasure in our life, you know a couple of slice you know a couple of squares of of good dark chocolate every day it's fine, it's good for you, you know um more than two is not necessarily good but there are things that we should take pleasure in i'm absolutely all for that i i am um uh, an epicurean stoic i am this the, the jungsu side of stoicism where you're saying oh no shit. it's not eeyore you know shit happens and you you've got well, marvin the paranoid android and you've somehow got to deal with it marcus aurelius of the the um, stoic philosophers it's no it's it's a glorious wonderful world full of marvelous things for me to experience so thrill-seeking is fine however if you want to be happy it's not going to do it earning a huge amount of money is not going to make you happy it's not going to have any once you are economically safe it's not going to make any difference at all other than you being able to say you know i've got a new car which is not really much of a satisfaction in terms of self-esteem or what have you. Yeah. In fact, happiness comes, it would seem to me, from two things. One is the life of the mind, that whatever is happening to you physically, you're engaged. And the greatest exponent of that was um, Stephen Hawking. Um, Mm. His documentary about himself uh, is one of the most brilliant things because you go in, so he can twitch this muscle here and his penis still works, apparently, because blood flow is not interrupted. So his nurse ran off with him. But he's sat there and he can twitch this muscle and communicate. And you get that he's a really happy man, despite the horrific thing that he suffered, you know, being told he got two years max to live when he was a student. Oh, yeah. You know, and his achievement, the first theoretical um construction of the big bang how the big bang occurred as a student um what happens if two black holes meet nobody had asked that question before that question before hawking radiation just this incredible mind and he's kind of he has the life of the mind he actually was satisfied with you'd be thinking out equations while all the other people at the party were going oh look at stephen hawking he's been on the simpsons you know um but So one part of it is the life of the mind. The other part of it is the feeling that that you're doing some good in the world, that that people are being helped by what you do. Those things lead to a permanent satisfaction. Scientology doesn't do that. Scientology is about making money. So let's jump into this hypnosis thing. I prefer to call it guided imagination, which is a definition in the Oxford Handbook of Hypnosis. And mm-hmm. that really opens things up when you're reading a book, when you're watching a movie, when you become taken up with the events. You're in your imagination. And creative people have to have tremendous imagination. This may be why it's difficult to, to impossible in fact, it's said to hypnotize phlegmatics, people who don't have emotional reactions. Because not, there is no imagination there there's nothing to to oh I can
1: see yeah I see how that works I see how that works I would um yeah let me throw this out there just as an initial as initial thought on this right because you say okay well we don't have you know you don't like the word trance or altered state and I think uh, and I've used those terms and and the reason I've used them is to describe that we're not talking about a condition which most people think of as their normal state um yeah but their
0: normal states are Are so many. I I
1: I I know. I'm I I know. I'm not. I'm not trying to accurately reflect reality right now. I'm talking about perception. Thank thank God for that. (laughs) How people perceive themselves, right? You're absolutely right. We're in all sorts of states, and there's all kinds of metrics that could be used to measure those states—from uh, emotion to reasoning power to awareness—all uh, these kind of things. And you know, and 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 there are arguments to be made about all of these. How aware are you when you know we see memes of a gorilla walking across the tennis court, but you don't notice it because there's a cute woman there? You know, and it's kind of like, well, you're not very aware, are you? No, I'm hyper aware of this one thing and therefore maybe not so aware of this other thing. Does that mean I'm somehow unaware? Not exactly. It's all a matter of kind of how we frame it and think about it. Selective,
0: selective perception, it, it's called. And and in the yeah. last couple of years, there have been counter arguments which support what you're saying. 80% of people, when they're told to count how many times the ball crosses the net, in a ping pong game, don't see the two guys in gorilla suits that
1: come on. Right, that's right, um, right. But so I, I that's guess that's not
0: necessarily going. a bad
1: thing. That's you know, it, it, that that's the point. Is it's a matter of let's let's take the good and the bad off of this and instead go well. What are we really doing? We're manipulating people's perceptions. We're manipulating somebody's um thought process or value system what's good what's bad well I'm going to sit you down and we're going to do a little mumbo jumbo here and at the end of this you're going to think a little differently than you do now right and maybe you're not going to necessarily be aware of or consciously thinking about all the things I'm doing to you because I'm going to guide you through this process and here we have this guided imagination concept And so so it's a matter maybe of kind of understanding the nuances of, well, what are we taught, you know, perception and awareness and consciousness. These are really loosey-goosey words in a lot of ways, depending on how you're approaching these things, right? So I think it's a little important to, to narrow yeah. these down a little bit. When we talk, when I use the word trance or altered state... I'm referring to a place where you have been manipulated or brought into a state where somebody else's ideas or your own imagination can start having the same degree of reality and, and realism or agreement or acceptance to you that your own conscious thoughts and feelings have on you. And, You know, And again, we could sit here all day making arguments, and I know people will sometimes in the comments make arguments about, oh, well, you're not even really in charge of all of your own thoughts and feelings. Yeah, I know. But I'm trying to explain this in ways that people can kind of easily understand of, well, there's the things you know you know, there's the things you know you're seeing right now. And then there's ways of curving that to where you think that's what's happening, but in fact, it's somebody else kind of throwing you some stuff instead, and and you accept it, you buy into it, you go, yep, this is reality, and this is, and so this is where I might suggest past life memories could be installed, or the idea of, um, you know, ethics is reason, ethics is survival, <laughs> you know, that, these crazy kind of very fundamental ideas that Hubbard introduces to people. Through both the the process of auditing, through repetition, mantras, you know, overwhelming their their perception, Mm -hmm. or through training where the person just sort of accepts this information because it's an authority figure telling them so they receive it uncritically. You know, both of those are, I think, different ways of talking about or, or looking at. What we're talking about when we start throwing this word hypnotism around, what did, I don't know. What do you think about what everything I just said there?
0: No, I, I think it's it's uh, very useful. Okay. Um, the 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 point is, however, that the outside agency directing your thoughts mm-hmm. is not necessarily in the present moment. And oh yeah, yeah yeah, it, good
1: point. Yeah,
0: the problem is that that we. By the time we realize, you know, we're already in the river swimming, when we wake up somewhere between the age of five and twelve, to being in the river, and our perception of the world um, is very limited. We have, uh, you know, perception is is the receipt of wavelengths through yes. the senses. That's right, and we receive. We can't see infrared. We can't see ultraviolet. So we have, you know, an eagle has seriously better eyesight than we do. Um, our hearing is appalling compared to a cat, a dog, or a whale. Indeed, they can hear 100 times more than we can. <sighs> uh, so, you know, those wavelengths that are between sound and colour, we're missing. Those that are beyond colour, we're missing. We So we have... Poor perceptual skills in those terms mm-hmm. um our body is there are parts of the body that are majorly interpretive of sensation, so the fingertips the lips, the tongue you know as represented in the the diagram of 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 the brain showing yes. how much of the brain is associated with the eyes with the fingers, you know you get this strange little creature with huge fingers um. We, so we have limited perception. Those perceptions are, um, that, that's already limiting what we'll be able to see. The next part is interpretation. And the problem is that our interpretation never can become objective. It can't.
1: Right. That's right.
0: Because there are limitations upon, and that interpretation will be conditioned by what we've been taught, outside influence, what we've experienced. I mean it used to it bothered me before Scientology, so as a 17-year-old, that there there seemed to be this, there were two, there was nature and nurture, and and these were the two things that were going on. And I'm going, well, can't can't I influence this by understanding anything? Isn't there a third part to this that I wasn't just conditioned into this or it's just genetic? Am I not and the, the contemporary view of evolution actually now finally allows a self to be part of that? But the self, oh dear. We have come in psychology to the point where Buddhism rules. There is no self. You know, I think James Watson of Crick and Watson fame, the DNA stuff, was the last person to seriously suggest that there was a control centre in the brain. So there was a, you know, a, he thought it was the charismatic nucleus. It isn't. And what is happening is that the 200 brain regions are interacting in real time, so that I can say words without having to think about what I'm going to say. And that's a scary thought. So very much of the process in, inside us is automatic and it can be hijacked. Um, we that's don't right. have an unconscious mind. I think that's nonsense. But we do have unconscious processes and we can. You know, when I was I was in Zen, involved in Zen Buddhism for a year before Scientology and learned to meditate in a monastery and all that great stuff. And meditation was very useful for me. But I'm think the context of meditation becomes really important it can be very dangerous um, if you don't get what's going on but it was useful to me in that i sat there in the zen monastery uh, and i only lasted three days i'd meant to go for six months and i've i'm really glad the end of three days i left because i absolutely consider zen buddhism to be an authoritarian cult um, clever and amusing, though, and insightful, many of the things are. The idea of the Zen stick, where you're whacked over the so- shoulders if you move at all while meditating, doesn't seem to me a, you know, a humanely acceptable technique. Let alone their training of the whole of the Japanese military, which took away any. You know, they were the, the worst, people to come up against. You know, because they had complete contempt for anybody who was not Japanese. You know, right. They mur- murdered perhaps 400,000 people at Nanjing. That's more than Hiroshima and Dresden combined. Civilians. And the general that did it was commended by his Zen master. So mm. you know, we have to be a bit careful about these things. But for me, the revela- one of the revelations of meditation was that I could see there were processes going on in my mind that were normally below my consciousness, but they mm-hmm. were not unconscious. And I got to seeing four levels of thinking that were active at the same time, just for a moment while in the monastery. And that opened the world up to me and and made my perception of who I am and what I am different. I know that we're thinking in language, so we're encoding everything into language, which is a very inexact thing. And then we think in that very inexact thing. That's why it's really important to rebrand to take the words that we're used to using, like trance, uh, altered state, hypnosis, and say, let's push those aside and look at what we're describing and see if there's a way that we can better understand it by using you know, a different language, because the language itself starts to determine what we're able to think, as George Orwell pointed out in 1984. Sure, sure. Nice. So that idea that there's an external source directing me through suggestibility Yeah, that's interesting. But it's happening internally as well. Yeah. so And so the state that we call hypnosis is of itself deeply controversial. I have sought to teach people in the last 40 years, as I have found out about these things, to think about what's happening. So that rather than hypnotizing them and getting them to change something, they can understand that we're all in a hypnotic state all the time. This Yes, you have this separate thing of putting somebody into a trance, but the reality is that the processing that occurs in the mind is 24-7. And we are, so for example, take priming. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Darren Brown is is the the go-to guy to understand this stuff in Mm -hmm. real time because of what he's been able to do and demonstrate. So he, he did one of his early shows about 20 years ago. He took two guys and he had them Um, He said, I want you to design a poster for a pet cemetery. And when they were done with it, he showed them that he'd already drawn all of the stuff. And then he showed you the route that he'd had them travel and the images they'd been exposed to during that route. Now, I think some of the things they came to, you'd come to anyway, you know, the, the gates of heaven and stuff like that. But he'd actually, they'd visually been primed to think these things we don't necessarily realize. And
1: and, and let's be clear for the audience. What we're literally talking about is putting photos or drawings or pictures in their environment without them being aware of it. Stuff in the hallway outside their office, stuff that they would see on a billboard, something they would see on a sign walking in the building, words and concepts and colors and ideas that he was creating in their environment on purpose without them knowing about it, that we're going to influence their thinking. And then he presents a scenario and they go right to where he wanted them to go because of that priming. That's that's what we're talking exactly.
0: about. Exactly. I mean, the most devastating demonstration, I mean, it's about 10 minutes, is him with the actor Simon Pegg. And um, he has had Pegg write down what he wants as a gift on a little bit of paper, put a sealed envelope sometime before the show. And they then have the show. And he said, well, I'm going to work out what it is you want by having this conversation with you. Mm -hmm. At the end of the conversation, he says, so so what was it that you you wrote down that you wanted? And he said, "Um, a red BMX bike. And there in the studio, in a box, is a red BMX bike. (laughs) He then says, open the envelope. And he pulls the envelope out. And he says, and he said, what does it say? He says, it says a leather jacket. And he then, and this is very rare, he shows you the priming that he's gone through. And it's quite startlingly exact. You know, they've got all of these wheels, all of these circles in the environment. The color red is there. And he, when you listen again to the spiel that he gives, you. You realise that he's used all sorts of words that are associated with bicycles, yes, and half words. That's right. This is priming, and this is a process that doesn't happen. You don't need Darren Brown. Just looking around the room, whatever catches your eye is priming you because it's putting your mind towards that within the unconscious processes. So, you know, if Tony Robbins or, or you know somebody like this. These seminars use incredible amounts of priming to bring people into a certain state of mind where they can be directed. Let's put aside manipulated. Let's put aside suggestibility. We can direct other people. And it's so much simpler than people imagine. If you want to affect somebody emotionally, there are certain words you can use that will change their emotional state. For most people, funeral, death, mm-hmm. sex, there, there are things that take the mind to a certain place. And if you can keep that going for long enough, you can put somebody into a, a place where you can change their mind. Now, the fundamental practices, and I should have patented this, this is my thought, that I've not seen anybody say this so simply, are repetition, fixation and mimicry. So, fixation, let's start with training routine zero and, and staring at things, the Gansfeld effect. If you sit somebody, and Darren Brown's done this too, in a completely dark room, within a few minutes, they will think there's something moving. They will hear something. And what's happened, as happens in meditation, mindfulness, TR zero, call it what you will, when you stare fixedly at something, There's not enough information coming in from the environment anymore. And so your mind, and I'm using the word mind rather than brain here, boys and girls, your mind will start to turn up the amplification, the sensitivity, and you'll start seeing things, you know, you'll hallucinate. Now, Mm -hmm. interestingly enough, if we get into the, the fundamentals of hypnosis, positive and negative hallucination, seeing something that isn't there, not seeing something that is there, is considered to be an altered state, is considered to be a trance state. I'm just going to say it's a state of mind. And it's a state of mind that can be easily induced. Just get somebody to stare at some, something, sit them in a dark room, and the sensitivity turns up, and you get the feedback from the system itself because it can't, you know, we can't find anything there. So that's mm-hmm. fixation, repetition. And in Scientology, there's a very interesting one. I mean, he uses what he calls Chinese school, where you just chant mm-hmm. things. And that's right. of course staff and members
1: preferably very loudly, by the way.
0: Yeah. <laughs> really staff... add some
1: force and emphasis to it, you know?
0: Staff members get this particularly, you know, in their in Daily Musters where where you're yeah. expected to now, this we see in dancing, say the you know the Sufi dancers in Istanbul, the dancing round and round and spinning. We see. Oh in...
1: sure, yeah, yeah, the whirling dervishes. <laughs> the whirling dervishes. So,
0: a process originally from Mavlavi, the, the the great Rumi, one of the most brilliant men who ever lived, as far as I'm concerned, the poet Rumi. But he, it was against Muslim practice where he was, um, in. Indeed, for the most part in Persia, though he was from Turkey. What what is now Turkey? It was the practice that dancing was wrong. And it's been put forward by one commentator, Idris Shah, that he introduced this practice because it, it made people have to think differently by doing something that violated a rule. But he also knew that by repeating the movement they would get dizzy. Now, the thing they have on the head when they're dancing, they have a rectangular thing on the heads. That's meant to be their tombstone. That's what they're meditating upon. And they will, by just by spinning round, they'll induce a state of mind, a different, an altered state of mind. And they will have these astonishing revelations and feelings. They'll have cognitions and very good indicators. If you look at Moroccan drumming, where you know, and you get the olulation, the <laughs> going on. You can see people falling into hypnotic states, you know, oh, whatever yeah. we want to call them trans yeah. states, what have you so that is one
1: that is so, is that so different from what we see in um, uh Pentecostal service, religious services, the you know, snake dancing and the and the speaking in the tongues and people throwing their literally oh. throwing their bodies around in rapturous. You know, feelings of the spirit and this kind of thing. I, I think that's a very similar activity where I, people I
0: think we're into the the same thing that, that we're dealing with a repetition um of of movement, of sound. Um mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm a you know, I, I listen to an enormous amount of music, you know, everything from sort of um medieval music right into things that are actually being recorded now. Um this very minute because i have a <laughs> guitar player in the house who's doing that um and i you know i grew up listening to blues rock you know things like cream and jimmy hendrix led zeppelin john mayle stuff like that and there's those people jimmy page jeff beck eric clapton they heard blues but what when they saw live blues it's not the same as the little two-and-a-half-minute recordings. Um, If you find, say, a James Brown gig, they'll get to this thing where they're just repeating the same phrase over and over again, Sly and the Family Stone, absolutely brilliant, and it induces a state Mm -hmm. by repeating the same phrase. And it's, it's fun, it's fine, until and unless... As um, William Sargent, the psychiatrist who is considered the number one suppressive person in Britain, as he pointed out, I think in his book the *Mind Manipulators*, he went on a tour of the world to look at these, um, you know, states that were being induced by certain things, and he talked to a, a, a male nurse who said, "If you want to get laid, go to a revival meeting, because the the, the women get so high that you can just take them out." So
1: uh, wow. a, piece, a piece of advice wow. that I don't
0: want anybody to be following, by the well, way.
1: Yes, please don't do that. Yeah, wow. That would but be that's, an advantage of somebody. Yeah, uh,
0: That's the repetition aspect. Yeah. Of, so we go into a state because, and, and you can do it, I think it was, uh, I remember there was Wordsworth or Tennyson who, who said, if you just repeat your name over and over again, you'll go into a state. Well, of course, this is transcendental meditation. You had given the name of a demon or deity, which is a secret, and you repeat it over and over. When Herbert Benson investigated them in the 60s and said to them, Well, tell me what your mantras are. And they're not really mantras, they're just single words. Tell me what they are. And they said, Oh, no, no, that's sacred and holy, although we're not a religious practice in any way because we want to get in the US Army um, and the schools. And so he said, All right, I'll get people to use the word one. And he found that he got exactly the same responses. And it was the repetition of the word. Now, the point is that you are inducing a state, and it may well be a bliss state, a euphoric state. You may have very good indicators. And I am not saying that's a bad thing, as long as you know why it's happening. If you think it's because your guru has supernatural powers, then you're wrong.
1: Exactly. And it's the interpretation. This is where, you know, this is key here, right? Is because what we're talking about here is is ways of induction or, you know, that dirty word manipulation, right, or changing states. But it's not, it, I, I'm really glad you just mentioned that because it's not, that's not the dangerous part. The dangerous part is how we interpret that event. Yes. That's the hard part, right? That's the part that people can't get their wits around is it's not the state. There's nothing wrong with being happy or being high or having a really great experience. People do it with drugs, alcohol, sex, uh, comic books. I mean, anything that's going to get you going. Dancing,
0: drumming, music, movies. Exactly.
1: Our whole lives are built around activities that induce these states in us. The problem isn't the state, it's what we think caused the state, what induces the state, what lets the state continue, and chasing after it with the misguided notion that it is my glimpse of heaven, my, you know, whatever the guru has told you, oh, it's, it's my exteriorization, I'm, I'm out of my body. I'm, I'm out of my head. Yeah. I'm having this <laughs> spiritual moment. Right. And it's, it, it, that's the danger is the interpretation of the event, you know, because I wanted to point this one out just as a, as, as a long line of what you were talking about earlier of, you know, how many of us go have an idea, go into, uh, pick up our phone or go onto a social media thing. I'm going to go send this tweet. I'm going to go make this post on Facebook. And you go there and 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes later, you're like, I never made that post. Cause I got so distracted by this post, this post, this color, this advertisement, this piece of thing. What is that? Is it any different from what we're talking about? You go in with one state of mind and within a millisecond, you find yourself uncontrollably unaware of the fact you've entered into another state and it takes you 20 minutes to realize, wait a minute, I came here to do this, <laughs> right? Is it any different from what we're talking about? You know, not really.
0: Yeah. It's, I, it's, part, it's part of, and and I think that's the problem of of these discrete kind of altered states suggestibility that that it it is if there's something special i'm currently reading um, a book by gloria mark called attention span um which is brilliant on this subject she spent decades studying human attention Mm. and not just putting people on computers and having them do little games which many psychologists do but doing it as she says in the wild so Mm. she'll put heart monitors and things that are inconspicuous and see over a fair period of time. And she's been very interested in interruption of attention and the rabbit holes of the internet Mm. and has some very cogent advice about, you know, getting back your life from the internet and all of that. I I would also say that as with when I left Scientology, you could talk to people, you know, in Scientology, you can't really ask people much about their experience because that, you know, they're meant to talk about their case only to their auditor, and they're not meant to have verbal tech, and so on and so forth. So I had a standard question probably for the first year after I left, and i talked with hundreds of former members during that time. And the question was, what was it that convinced you? What was the peak experience you had? Or the the moment of awe, as as Yuval would put it. What was the peak experience you had that convinced you that this was worth doing? And it was very interesting because almost all of the people I talked with said it was training routine zero.
1: Right. There it Some is. Some of them
0: said a book one bionetic session, which yep. Hubbard himself called hypnotic when he canceled it in 1951, you know, because fluttering of the eyelids, all of that stuff.
1: That's right. But
0: then I sort of made a little guess about this quite early on and said, and, and you wanted to achieve that state again. And they say, yes. And you never did yes now this is exactly parallel to drug experiences with yes with hard drugs addictive drugs that right. you build tolerance up it it requires more and more to get the same effect and talking to um junkies talking to and, and contrary to what scientology tells people i've never taken heroin let alone being a having been a, a junkie i've never you know been a junkie of any kind um Other than perhaps studying Scientology, I shouldn't be doing this anymore. Why am I doing this? (laughs) But um, I got the idea, well, yes, this is exactly that you're having to up the dose and it's no longer satisfying. So it's always the idea. And I got this when I was doing the the class zero course at St. Hill, that I realized that everybody wanted to sign things off on the check sheet as fast as possible so they could get to the next course. And I realized it, especially over the um, hypnosis and the tone scale, the observation of the obvious. Yes. Thank you for that new word, Ron. And I realized that that was in contradiction to Scientology 88008 in terms of where people are. You know, everybody's below death, this kind of thing. That There's direct contradiction. And the other three students that were working on the same level, my twin and another pair, they just, when I brought it up to them, they just, they'd signed that off already. I got sent to Qual Qualifications Division because I'm saying this is a contradiction, uh, a double bind indeed. And thankfully, back then, Qual, they didn't charge you any money. So it just, I just went through the annoyance of them not understanding what I was talking about and went back to the course. But I realized that, you know, it's like the Amazon parcel. I'm now. I'm finally on this course I so wanted to do. I want to be on the next one.
1: Exactly. That's a junkie.
0: That's a junkie. You're going. I want the next hit. The next hit. The next hit.
1: That's right. That's right. It's chasing that high, as we call it. Yeah. And that's and that is absolutely. People can become addicted to. I watched it happen. Even when I was in, I found it a little disturbing. When we, the the one example. That was so obvious, even as a Scientologist, I couldn't deny it. Was a woman who, you know, every time her needle stopped floating, she was in the organization demanding to get back in session immediately, practically in tears, because she needed that session. Fixed.
2: Fix, yeah. Fix. And,
1: and we were, ser- I was like, holy crap, lady. Like, it was a little scary. I had seen people who wanted, who were really, you know, into it to get their auditing, but this woman was actually scary, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, and um, that, and that, and unfortunately, you know, that wasn't the only time I've observed that over the years, you know, and it's, it's this exact phenomena. How could it, how could you explain that behavior? I mean, it's, it's absolutely the simplest explanation for what we're talking about. It's it, it just, this just checks off all of these boxes.
0: I mean, in, in, Robert Cialdini's Influence, a book that anybody and everybody ought to read. Um, He talks about going to a a lecture on transcendental meditation with two presenters, and he took along a professor of logic, and um, they presented, and then the professor of logic stood up and said, this, 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 and this. And the first presenter tried to answer and went, oh, no, handed over to the second one, and went, oh, yeah, you've got a point. And they got completely locked and then people signed up to do the course. So Cialdini and this other guy, as they left, said, why did you sign up? You know, you heard that they don't know what they're talking about. And the response was, if I'd thought about what you'd said, I wouldn't have signed up. But I'm desperate for some kind of change in my life. And so people are hooked in that way. The, the third third thing i came to you know in trying to simplify this whole mess is mimicry so we have repetition fixation and mimicry and if you ape somebody else that's the word that's used in english it's a good word for that because apes don't do it we do um then you will start to behave like them and this is it's actually foundational to cognitive behavioral therapy and one of the things that they don't necessarily understand about what they're doing. It's called patterning in other places. Now, in Scientology, you have in the objective processes the direct use of uh, mimicry where, mm-hmm. where you are seeking to sync people. Now, um, hypnotists, will the, the technique they use is called pacing. And um, in therapeutic systems, it's often taught without explaining that it has what could be called the hypnotic basis. And of course, we don't do that in our therapies. In the Dead Poets Society, there's which is a wonderful movie, there's a scene where uh, Robin Williams has the pupils walking around the courtyard and he has them do it. And then he points out to them that they've fallen into step with each other. They're marching. But it's a natural process with human beings to mimic and to, to, and that makes us more susceptible. Um, is presumably why armies the world over. Do the left right, left right, left right, left right, and all of that stuff. That you are you are basically conditioning people into obedience, into response. Yep. That's right. And,
1: and look at how easy it is to do because we're kind of built for it.
0: Yeah, and you know and it, it is said that you know, I made a comment about apes. It it's said about the other primates that human beings tend to absolutely mimic an action to to learn it apes don't the other apes the other Mm. apes don't but they will do something like what what the other bonobo chimp gorilla or orangutan did and they will learn how to do the thing but we we'll do it precisely and that means that we also tend to pass on um mistakes so the the famous story it's told many times is, is the woman who cuts the end off a piece of ham, both ends off, before she cooks it. And one of her friends says, why are you doing that? He said, oh, well, my mum does it. So she calls her mum up and she says, why do we cut the ends off the ham? And she says, you know what? Your grandma does it. So she calls the grandma up and says, why do you cut the ends off the ham? And she said, well, my baking tray was too small. Uh, there's one uh, Primo Levi, the, the brilliant Primo Levi, um he talks about he, he was an industrial chemist and, and he arrives at a factory where they're putting this additive into the paint. And he's saying, Why are you putting that in? And I go, I don't know, you know, we've been doing it for years. And then he remembered that years before he'd visited this factory and they'd had a batch of paint that had gelled and it needed to be turned to a liquid. And so he'd said, Add this chemical. So they were doing what he'd told them and they completely. Lost, and I would say that a lot of religions and a lot of political practices, you know, all sorts of groups with human beings, got no idea why they've got a chasuble and a thurible, you know, and whether Jesus would have recognized these words at all. And why, but they're in fact repeating the rituals, they're doing it the same right. way every time, they're doing it exactly. I mean, for the Romans, this was so exact that the three days of invocations prior to a, a major festival, if a priest made a mistake, if there was one word wrong, they had to go back to the beginning and do it all again. Claudius, being a stutterer, decided to, to abolish that rule. But for you know, for some time before him, it, so the ritual has to be exact, has to be now. Let's move into Scientology and think about that. Auditing commands. They're not questions, they're commands. And they have to be worded exactly the same way. So the person doing the auditing is actually inducing a state through repetition in their own work. The worst I've ever seen was the man who was held to be the top auditor in the UK, uh, Richard Rees, who had a master's Hmm. degree from Oxford. He's the man... Well, when Bill Clinton said, I went to Oxford with a Scientologist, it can't be that bad because he was okay. What a heck of a way to reason something. You know, I had dinner with a Nazi once and he was really courteous. So Nazi, you know, not really. Richard Rees was, um, I'd complained. I was on OT5 in 1981, I think it was, 82, 82. And um, I'd complained that the uh, guy who was auditing me, Mike Austin, um couldn't open the window in his room, so the room was, you know, he was OT five, but he couldn't open the window, hmm. uh, and it, his room smelled, and it was overheated. And I was sort of, you know, why, why am I? And rather than showing Mike how to open his window, which actually opened onto the concourse, so that anybody outside that window could have heard an OT five session, you know, rather than doing that, they assigned me to Richard Reese, who was the tech sec. UK, the technical secretary of UK. He was the head of all auditing in the United Kingdom, all Scientology counselling. And this was significant enough that in the morning, he had Van Morrison, and in the afternoon, he had me. And we were the only two people he was doing. And he really freaked me out because he was completely wooden. There was just no reaction, no emotional connection of any kind, which I think... Was a consequence of the rehabilitation project force and him having the spirit sucked out of his, his body, yeah. poor man. But but seeing this, that you become this robot, that that you know the perfect auditor has all of his or her attention on you, all of it, while looking at the e-meter, the command sheet, and writing down what you say. Well, it's not going to be all of it. I'm reckoning, and that double bind, the, that lie then Hubbard was so good at these. You know, um, the only reason a student gives up a study or becomes confused is the misunderstood word. It says at the beginning of all Scientology Uh. books. However, there's also too steep a gradient. There's also um, absence of mass. There's also Mm -hmm. suppressive rendition, which I'd say is what Scientology is. But the only reason you give up, well, except for these other reasons, he so frequently, you know, Traps sticks you with, with with one of those sort of things. Right. The other, the other, and final part um, of, well, no, not the final part really. If you want to induce a a, a a state where you can control somebody, direct them, then the royal road is confusion.
1: I'm so glad you brought this up because I was going to bring this up if you didn't. So yes, please, please go into this.
0: So. Um, Milton Erickson, who was about the only serious practitioner of hypnosis by the 1950s, it had been dismissed as as a silly, you know, um,
1: Party trick or something. Yeah,
0: exactly. It was, you know, it, I, I think it said that by n- the mid 1970s, only two of the 90 psychology degrees available in the US even mentioned hypnosis. Mm. Well, so Ericsson just kept on doing what he was doing. He was giving a lecture one day and there was a professor in the front row who, who stood up to start railing against what he was saying. And Ericsson said, why don't you come up to the podium? And the guy came up and Ericsson put his hand out and the guy put his hand out. But Ericsson kept on moving down and tied the guy's shoelace. He didn't shake hands with him. There's the confusion moment. And in that moment, he said, you could just go back to your seat and sit quietly till the end of the talk. And the professor turned around went and sat in his seat. When somebody is confused, they become vulnerable to direction from the outside. Let's link that back to cogn- cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. We reject anything that goes against our beliefs because that will mean we are confused. And when we are confused, we are more easily directed. The problem is with people who are in cognitive dissonance, and we all are to some degree, that believing things that are nonsense, you know, and acting in ways that are irrational and unhelpful, that we're in a state of confusion. And any extreme of emotion, whether it's elation, terror, or rage, makes us more susceptible to direction. So, William Sargent in *Battle for the Mind* says, uh, you know, he's writing in the fifties when it's a bit dangerous to go after Christianity, but he says so. I'm going to talk about the sect I grew up in. I'm a Methodist, and he he gives an account from the life of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodists, um, in the 18th century, and he says at his talks, people would quite standardly he would say, you know, this is what heaven's like, this is what hell's like, blah, flesh dripping on horrible. And when you're walking home tonight, you could be struck. And if you don't accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now, you're going to the nasty place. And people would spin round in the audience and fall to the ground. And um, the mimicry aspect of of this is that usually a particular hypnotic operator, to use Aaron Hubbard's term, will induce an exact response. Faith healers, again, do this that people, and for Wesley, it would be this spinning around and falling down. There was a guy who's at the back of the hall and he starts shouting at Wesley and saying, This is absolute nonsense, what you're saying. He takes five steps, spins around, falls to the ground, and stands up, converted. Any extreme of emotion makes you more vulnerable to external direction. And so, you know, enraging somebody. You know, a really clever manipulator can actually get you absolutely furious, and then put in the the control they want. Which, which, in Ron Hubbard's case, would be give me all your money. You know, the 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 governing policy of Scientology: make money, make more money, and all of that that nonsense. Sure.
1: So, one wonders. One, what comes to mind for me right now is commenting on Larry Ray.
2: Yes. Um, yeah.
1: Right from that Hulu. Stolen Youth documentary, right? The man who um, basically enslaved about five college students for a period of around 10 years. And so he, moved,
0: he moves in with his, his, his daughter who's at college, yep. and he then takes over these students who are right. eminently clever people, some of them, and he manages to completely control them. I've not seen the documentary, but I've heard about it from you and from Steve Hassan.
1: Yeah, um- yeah, it's it's impressive. And it's impressive to watch the video footage of how he was going about doing that because what you hear in him is a calm you know sort of not not calm like why don't you but very much not responding to the horror story that is in front of him whether it's somebody mm-hmm. having a psychotic episode or somebody you know who is being castigated and physically abused by Larry Ray as he's talking to them antagonizing them pushing them mm-hmm. saying things to them but a comment that i made in response to Larry Ray and watching that is the superpower i called it that these Manipulators or predators seem to have in those moments where somebody can come at them. And this has been noted by by people. um, Jim Jones could do this, um, you know, Ron Hubbard could do this, where somebody could come at them even pissed, even upset with them. I'm, you know, I'm upset because you have blah, blah, and they're going to go confront them on it, or they're going to go into their presence and they're going to talk to them about something. And either way, they end up walking out, not only just just absolutely positive that this person, not only this 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 Larry Ray character, the Selvron Hubbard character, not only wasn't wrong, But they walk out of that room wondering what's wrong with themselves that they ever even thought to question the motives and intentions and goodness of this predator and that that and i and i called it a superpower being able to turn that on a person mm-hmm. and it suggests a little bit of what you were just talking about there where somebody comes in in a confusion they are upset they have they are angry mm-hmm. about their cognitive dissonance they are mm-hmm. trying to resolve Here's this person, this authority figure again, right, who they have invested their emotional life in, and now this person seems to be betraying those values, seems to be a hypocrite because they are, Mm -hmm. and they're going to go, you know, resolve this cognitive dissonance. They're going to go resolve this problem they have Mm -hmm. with this guy, and instead it somehow gets turned on them, and now they're questioning themselves right mm-hmm. and i can't help but think of what we were just talking about there with taking that confusion taking that issue and using it as an opportunity to install some more nonsense mm-hmm. in the person you know
0: yeah and it, and it became so ex- so extreme that the trauma bonding as, as some people yeah. call it that was yeah. occ- occurring in 1968 aboard hubbard's ships where um you know,
1: that's for sure.
0: I've interviewed lots of people about overboarding, mm-hmm. and I published all the photographs that Hubbard took in order to for, auditor number 41. I put them on the internet in the mid '90s. That's where it came from. Um, quite a lot of my library was shared. I mean, the, the shrinking world of Earlron Hubbard, the documentary that came, I got it out of Granada TV's archives. But to see which is filmed in that period. Mm-hmm. and every everybody should should watch that to to see the the wretched state that the organization were in you know yeah. the, they look so distressed and hubbard blinking his way so you know lying his way you know i had no second wife i, I um there are no swiss bank, there is one swiss bank account you know um and um him being asked about his belief in reincarnation and he hesitates and so charlie nairn says um but your followers believe. And Hubbard goes, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fine, good. That, um, So, you know, Karen de la Carrière, um, and I, I've interviewed, i would interviewed lots of people who'd had, had this happen to them. She pointed out that in the harbour at Corfu, where they were throwing them over, there were other ships docked, and all of the ships were discharging their sewage into the water. So these people were being thrown from... Twenty-five to forty feet high. The high diving board at our swimming pools is fourteen feet. Some of them didn't couldn't swim. They were being blindfolded. They're having their ankles tied together. And you go, just the direct trauma bonding that's happening here. That that you've got to come away from this again, following um, Cialdini's consistency or commitment principle, um, or the sunk cost fallacy. I've had this horrible thing done to me. What's the benefit I've got? You know th- yes. that. So it was good for me in this way to be thrown into human excrement by this monster who is saving humanity um, because he cares about trauma. He doesn't want to cause engrams by throwing people into sewage. Hmm. There may be another of those double binds going on there. And then just to get into the what the states are. that that are associated with this thing that's called hypnosis. I mentioned positive and negative hallucination. And you talked about the gorilla suit experiment. So Mm -hmm. selective perception means this isn't just a hypnotic effect. This is something that we're all selecting from the environment, that which is significant to us. And that means that there'll be negative hallucination. There'll be things we don't notice. Yes. Then there's positive hallucination, as you also said. the The function of the mind is to predict. So this whole meditation to be in the present moment. No, you need to be alert to what's happening, so you can predict what will happen, so that the you know the lion doesn't eat you or or, or whatever. You know that we we have these things. In terms of positive hallucination, if you're driving along at night and and you see a a pile of leaves by the side of the road you can instantly read that as a person i mean i, I had it happen where, where there was a, a black waste bag in the road and it looked as if there was somebody lying down in the road because sure. and again it, if you see an abstract pattern and there are two dots in it you will interpret them as eyes and as mm-hmm. a painter i'm very familiar with gestalt and how people read things, because I make abstract paintings that are complicated, and people start seeing highly realistic things in them, but what they're seeing is only in their own mind. it's not something I put there, and that I you know devised this method while I was a Scientologist, and probably wasn't meant to be studying Gestalt psychology, but you know a bit of a maverick, just as Elron Hubbard said he was, so we will interpret the world. With positive hallucination, we'll see stuff that isn't there in our attempt to work out what is. But getting people to see things or not see things is part of it. You then have age regression and age progression. So in Scientology, it's age regression. You know, you are finding things in the past that, you know, are memories. And you get this interesting mixture that, that they'll, some of what you remember will be real. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to bother me because I have a reasonably good memory and um, I'd be auditing somebody and I'd realize that if I asked them what they had for breakfast, they probably couldn't tell me, but they'd be saying, oh yeah, I was six years old and this, that, and the other. So that leads us into the past life stuff, where which is age regression. It's making somebody. Now, the reality is that when you tell somebody to regress to age seven, they will mimic A seven-year-old talking in the way a seven-year-old would. They're not actually entering that time. There's mimicry going on. And mimicry is one of the most fascinating aspects of humanity. Uh, I got to this. I, I knew two women who read the book When Rabbit Howls, which allegedly describes a person who has 99 personalities, distinct personalities, multiple personality disorder before we started calling it dissociative identity disorder. Um, And there are sceptics in this room at this moment about about that condition because we are all capable of mimicking anything, any behaviour another human being can do. I saw these two women. I knew them, one of them, very well before they read this book. And they read this book and they each developed multiple personalities. It was shameful to see. It was awful to see how. So, because we can mimic states, we have to be very careful about how we diagnose somebody and what's really going on with them. And part of that is the induction of false memories through age regression. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, Darren Brown—he had a guy who, who was going, "Oh yeah, I was five, and I went up in this hot air balloon." And it, it just took him a few minutes to get the guy to believe this. And he'd already checked with the guy's family and what have you to make sure it had not happened. And so you have people who are talking about being in combat alongside Elrond Hubbard or um, you know the time they spent on the planet Zog or, or what have you. And you go into a, a completely hallucinated world, which a hypnotist would say, that's hypnotism. Yeah. You then have age progression, which which doesn't happen so much in Scientology, but you can get somebody to do the opposite. You can get them to go forward. Now, this can is used as a therapeutic technique um, by some people. One of the ones is um sit down and write a list of the things that you want to have achieved by the time you die. And that can be very beneficial to people to focus them on what really matters to them. That's age progression. Um Then you can have amnesia and hyperamnesia. 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 Amnesia, amnesia, you can get people to forget things. Mm. And we do, quite naturally. Mm -hmm. Or you can get people to remember things. And um, again, Hubbard will have seen this as a fundamental technique when he was studying hypnosis, which he said he started doing when he was 16. Uh, He says in Dianetics, Dianetics is not in any way based on Hypnosis. He also says in Dianetics, same book, it's totally based on hypnosis. And he also, in as I famously repeated, in in Science of Survival, said, never believe a hypnotist. I'm underlining the word never. aaron Hubbard said never believe a hypnotist, and he said he was a hypnotist. But he will have seen the <laughs> hypnesia practiced by hypnotists as therapy, where they're getting people to recover memories. What we now know is that most of these recovered memories will be false.
1: That's right. Um, and often as a result of inadvertent or sometimes verdant hmm. <laughs> suggestion. right? Advertent.
0: And that leads us to, to <laughs> the, the final <laughs> aspect, which is um, heightened perception. And I, I remember it's the, is it the Book of E-Meter Essentials or the Book of E-Meter Drills. I think it's the drills. And it has a list of pre-clear originations in it.
1: Yes, pre-clear origination sheet, yes.
0: I hadn't looked at that for a very, very long time. And <laughs> the then the
1: covers in the room are brighter somehow.
0: <laughs> I I wanted to um you know, quote moo gum guy pan <laughs> some gum <at> somebody <laughs> in an email about six or seven years ago. So I pulled out this list, not having looked at it since the early nineteen eighties. Yep. And because I have now read so much about hypnosis and, and let me explain, I've never practiced or trained as a hypnotist because I was horrified to think that that's what I'd been doing in Scientology. I wanted to know about it so I wouldn't do it. And mm-hmm. so I could, I suppose, to some extent, see if it was being done to me, but more really because I didn't want to be manipulating people because I'd been trained for nine years to manipulate people. Reading that list... You know, you're getting bigger, you're getting smaller, the heightened perception. So what he's saying is these are the things that people will say in auditing sessions. And you're going, they will tell you that they're experiencing hypnotic effects. They're experiencing things that are normally associated with hypnotic conditions. And that's what you can expect as an auditor. He doesn't really explain why or how. And having studied hypnosis his whole adult life, he knows very well what he's saying with those
1: lists exactly <sighs> exactly it's really quite something um yeah i was trying to see if i could pull it up here um because you have things like you know i feel like i have a tight band around my head mm. uh you know these they just like these really bizarre sensations I can't uh stop
0: and- thinking about that cop who blew his whistle at me this morning that's, that's, right. that's right
1: i keep thinking that's right yeah this is really wild statements and you're just like where'd they get these things from well these are things people say when they're you know being hypnotized he also
0: says that you your misunderstood words will screw you up and and get in the way of your learning but he doesn't explain what gum guy pan means
1: exactly and you
0: don't think to look it up
1: but it is a a real
0: it is a real thing
1: yes well yeah exactly um Okay. Let let me say this. Let me let me let me see what you what what, what your thinking is on this and then we'll maybe wrap up here. Um it seems to me that a lot of what we've been talking about when we um and sort of debunking maybe these concepts or not debunking, but modifying or we're gonna be clarifying, hmm. you know, the trance and altered states and these various things, right? What do Illumi- we do
0: illuminating?
1: About? Yeah, okay, there we go. Illuminating you know, shining some light on this. Um I hope that kind of what I'm getting here, and I hope what the audience has kind of been getting from what we've been talking about here is that we're not off in the field of abnormal psychology right now. We're in the very normal psychology field here and talking about all of this. We've been normalizing a lot of things here. We're talking about things everyone experiences all the time. Mm. You know, you watch TV, you go into a classroom, you go see a lecture, you go to a movie, you go watch um, a concert. You you talk
0: with a friend.
1: Talk with a friend. Just just as
0: we are doing now.
1: Yeah, yeah. all these different places we go, well, what are we doing? Well, we're receiving input. We're giving output, but we're receiving a lot of input. And what are we doing with that? What's it doing to us? Well, it does all kinds of things to us. Gets us thinking, gets us feeling, gets us emoting. But sometimes it can get us into a place where we're accepting information uncritically. Yes. And if that's not suggestion, I don't know what is. And, mm-hmm. and, and there are lots and lots of things that can put you in that place. Mm-hmm. So could we say we're all running around in a hypnotic trance all the time? probably a little strong language using, you know, describing it that way. But are we always aware of what we're inputting and how we're thinking about it? No, we are not. And, and, and if anything is being made in an effort on my part, or I, I think on John's part, in discussing Critical thinking, emotional intelligence, mindfulness, or awareness, or learning, or understanding this stuff. You know, we use these words, and I think what we're really talking about here is kind of being a little bit more aware of what you're inputting you know, and, and what's affecting you, and what are you choosing to let affect you, and how are you interpreting these effects. Because it's going to happen. These things are going to happen to you. How do you interpret it? And do you interpret it against a set of standards that's maybe a little, you know, objective? Or a bunch of subjective ideas like, you know, this is what Jesus wants from me. Or what would Ron do? Or, you know. The devil is suggesting
0: I should listen to music. And music is evil. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it just seems that, you know, this is maybe more of a broad, if you wanted to start putting this in language of, well, is this a problem? Well, yeah, it is, or it certainly can be made into one, but it might be one that all of us are experiencing from time to time, not just those wacky, stupid cult members. And I think that's kind of the point I wanted to make in drawing this to a close is this is an us problem. It's not just a cult problem. Now
0: it It's the problem of our world and and I'm very emphatic about this that yes. that authoritarianism, obedience to authority, unthinking, uncritical obedience to authority, is what's got us into this mess. It's why there's a war in ukraine it it and wars in many other places as well, unfortunately, it's why the environment is being devastated even though it's the 18th century when the first um, ecology, ecological writings are being made um, uh, by um, uh, von Humboldt, um, yeah. who, who is just an amazing, amazing character. He was Darwin's superhero. That was what Darwin was reading on the Beagle, von Humboldt. Von Humboldt pointed out there were priests in South America who, because they loved turtle eggs so much, were harvesting them all. And he said... This will mean that there won't be any more eggs after a while, and this is in like 1790 or something. so we're at this point now where we're poisoning and devastating the world um, we are supporting the Chinese fascist dictatorship um, so that we can have lots of plastic stuff that we can feed to the dolphins and and the fishes and. I mean, in this country, our our rivers, particularly in England, actually, it's worse in England than in Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland. Mm. The pollution levels in our rivers are absolutely appalling. We're pouring sewage into... We're doing awful things. We're doing these awful things unthinkingly, uncritically, because we have not yet grown up enough to be able to take responsibility for our actions and rein in the tyrants and manipulators and predators who are allowing this to happen. Um, because without laws, it's not going to change. Um, and yeah, we're seeing something. But the thought that, you know, Rachel Carson published her, her book in 19, Silent Spring, in 1963, and she was annihilated by the, the chemical industry and people who were, and she was suggesting that DDT was bad for people and that there was going to be a problem. DDT is still being used in Africa. It's still being used and it poisons generation after generation. Everything that touches it is contaminated. So we, we've got, as a species, we're doing awful things. When I was uh, 17 or 18, a friend of mine said, you know, the best thing that could happen for planet Earth is to wipe out all human beings. And it took me a couple of years with that one, kind of going, "Ooh, you might have a point. And eventually I went, no, it's been messed up so badly that the only species that can save the planet is us. So... It's the other way around. I'm a big Greta Thunberg fan myself. I've even written poetry about her. Um, Remarkable woman. But Mm. we need to understand the authoritarian relationship before anything else. And that means understanding how we are affected and becoming growing up, you know, just getting past it um, and, and doing something wonderful with our lives. Which we might as well do, rather than. You know, Montaigne wrote this brilliant essay about death, and uh, he wrote brilliant essays about everything, pretty much. But uh, it's 16th century contemporary of uh, Shakespeare, even though he was French, and you know they are natural enemies, of course. Um, but oh, Montaigne he wrote about death, and he, he said um, he said that um, he spent his youth worrying about death, and now as a, as a man who was in his fifties and therefore approaching death in, in normal span of years at that time, he realized what an amount of time he'd wasted, that that it wasn't a problem at all. It was absolutely fine. And I, so getting people to, and, and so much of what we call religion is worrying about death mm. as far as I'm concerned. There's mm. not the good stuff in religion, and there's very good stuff mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the major religions in all of them. Um, Getting past that and worrying about the future, being concerned that that we will leave something for our children's children's children, um, rather than devastating the planet. We're not going to do that unless we understand the authoritarian relationship, stop worshipping gurus and, and stop, you know, electing politicians who care for a change (laughs) rather than the horrible narcissists that we tend to put in charge of us. And I, you know, there's no party political thing for me there. I, I have no political affiliation. As far as I can see, there are a few politicians who are the best of people, but there are certainly quite a lot of politicians who are the worst of people. And So we, we need to understand that. And, I mean, as you well know, um, the book I've written about it is opening our minds, avoiding abusive relationships uh, and authoritarian groups and when michael langoni who was then the head of the international cultic studies association read the book a few years ago he said nobody's ever done this before that that you've not just taken cults taken all of the places where this psychology exists this coercive psychology is used and shown it's the same thing that's being used it's not complicated it's quite straightforward but for some reason apart from the course you did at Salford University with Rod and Linda Dubra Marshall, there is no other master's course on this subject.
1: That's right. Um, that's right. So and that's why it's so important. And, yeah. that we, and that's why we promote it so much. You know.
0: Yeah, I haven't made a T-shirt yet, but but the book is available in print as an e-book, and there's even a version of me reading it. Um, and I, you know, it'd be good to have that conversation to to get that out into the world. So I would like you know the devotees and followers that we've created through this program to now go out on street corners and sell worn copies of my books until such (laughs) time as I become the richest man in the world and um, there we go that's evidently my
1: purpose (laughs) there we go (laughs) you you will sell the books books. (laughs) books. yes well as uh as Chris's books too (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is this this is important stuff and i agree with john i think that um you know we have that old uh you know those who um okay hop down buddy hop down. <laughs> thank you we Benson. have that old, uh yeah exactly he he got it in the room here so i'm gonna have to snip that out um we have that old saying in history those who uh don't know history are doomed to repeat it i it i on. sort of I sort of varied that up a little bit with uh those who don't know history are doomed to be assholes.
0: <laughs> so, Wait, curiously, Jim Jones had it above his throne at Jonestown, the Santayana quote. Uh, which, you know, yeah. it's like um, and I wanted to um to to throw in because we found the source of it, this thing that's attributed to Voltaire. Um Oh yeah. People who believe absurdities will commit atrocities. Yeah. Voltaire never said that.
1: Nope.
0: nope. But it has been it said was that? said. It was said by Radhakrishnan, who was the second premier of India. And the thought that a man as brilliant as Radhakrishnan was the premier of India, and that we now have um, Nehendra Modi, who is just, I think, one of the worst people in history, running the largest democracy and showing that people will vote for somebody who believes in massacring Muslims as a part of, of the project, the you know, so-called pink revolution in India at the moment. Um, but, but people who believe absurdities will commit atrocities. And um, to not believe absurdities means you're going to have to think, you're going to have to find your way through and come to a principle for me that says, we are pro-human. You know, right. We are for for humanity and and those people that are against any segment of humanity race, creed, color, nation, any of this thing. They're in the wrong and they have the wrong view.
1: That's right. And on that's, track, right. that's the world we have to, we've got to create that world. And we have, <sighs> we're only going to get there if we understand ourselves so yeah. that we can overcome our weaknesses basically. Yeah. And that's thats what this show is about. That's what we talk about all the time because we're talking about people out there who are not are, on, are not only not interested in dealing with or solving our problems, but in but use our problems and use our emotional states and use these problems to control us further and make it worse.
0: To prey you upon know. us and devastate our environment. To, the, the, these That's are the right. true suppressive people of whom I when I I got a letter from Richard DeMille, who who wrote Science of Survival from Hubbard's Notes and two other books as well of Hubbard's, and was the son of Cecil B the adopted son of Cecil. Peter Mill, the great film director, in fact, a blood nephew. But he wrote me a letter. He was also a professor of psychology for a while. But he wrote me a letter after reading Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky. And, and he was very grateful that I'd observed that Elron Hubbard was the archetypal, suppressive person. Yes. <laughs> Having, exactly. you know, he knew him very well. So, exactly. well, there we are. We, we have exhausted all of our audience now. They're all kind of, will this ever end? it's like it's like listening to the rituals before a, a roman <laughs> three days of oh.
1: well when it, we are coming uh, to a conclusion i promise no we'll, we'll wrap up now uh, john thank you very much for taking the time thank uh, you
0: it's been great yeah
1: time. it's always fun and i hope <laughs> you guys out there um you know entertaining enjoyable uh entertaining informative and educational that is the goal here um Thank you very much for coming around and listening to us, blabber on. We hope you got something out of this. And I'll see you next week. Yep.
0: And bye. let us know in the comments. That's right. you. Okay, bye. <laughs> Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.
2: You will sell the books.